That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. A couple of weeks ago, Airless for Coffee. You know the former. Oregon State University Athletic Director Bob DeCarolis left Oregon State in 2015, spent 47 years coach or college administrator, really bright guy with a wealth of knowledge, and uh, a guy that ultimately, I mean, if we're being real, helped Oregon State get on the map, stay on the map. I mean, he was such a part of Oregon State's resurgence in football both behind uh, Dennis Erickson and Mike Riley, that it's hard for me not to give Bob DeCarolis a whole bunch of credit. I think he deserves some credit. I think when I go into Research Stadium, I don't know what you see when you see Research Stadium, but I see the house that Bobby D built, Builder Bob. Bob DeCarolis uh, in 2011 was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And for those of you who are familiar with Parkinson's, you know, you may think of uh, tremors, you may think of uh, rigid muscles. You may think uh, you may think Brian Grant. You may think uh, you know. Uh, you may think about other celebrities who have been afflicted with Parkinson's. But uh, when I think of when I think of uh, Bobby DeCarolis and and obviously um, Reeser Stadium, I I really don't know like. Aside from Brian Grant, aside from Michael J. Fox, who people saw, I really don't know another case for me personally of being around somebody who spoke so openly about the disease that afflicted him. When he was diagnosed in 2011, I'll never forget, Bobby Careless came to downtown Portland, and uh, I sat with him. We had coffee. We just talked. And, and, you know, I know in today's world, administrators in college athletics – um, are different than maybe they were 20, 30 years ago. But I really always did feel like Bob DeCarolis was kind of a blend of a guy who was a terrific fundraiser and a guy who really understood what it was to be a coach on the college level. He started his career coaching softball at Michigan and then became an, a, an administrator at Michigan and ultimately, uh, along with Mitch Barnhart, ended up at Oregon State as a deputy AD and then rose to the athletic director position and, and uh, you know, was there when Oregon State ended a 28-season drought of not going to bowl games. And a lot of Beaver fans and a lot of Duck fans, when I got to the state of Oregon in 2002, told me about empty stadiums. That A lot of you told me, hey, I remember sitting at Autzen Stadium when nobody else was there. And I remember sitting at Research Stadium when no one else was there. And you were really talking about the teams of the 1970s and maybe early to mid-1980s in Oregon's case. And frankly, all the way until the Dennis Erickson, Mike Riley era. 
at Oregon State, where Oregon State started to be passable uh, in Bob DeCarolis' tenure. Uh, DeCarolis did the unthinkable at Oregon State because you got to th- you got to understand, 28 straight seasons of not going to a bowl game uh, creates a pattern. You know, it is a it it becomes who you are, it becomes your brand, and to shake your own brand takes a lot of intention. It takes a lot of success. It takes a lot of um, you know planning and. Lo and behold, Mike Riley got the program to a passable state before leaving to the NFL. Dennis Erickson came in, truly elevated the program to the next level, got to the Fiesta Bowl, beat Notre Dame. You know the story. Mike Riley then comes back to succeed his successor. So he becomes the answer to a trivia question. Mike Riley, Oregon State football coach. Uh, you know, if, if we're looking at Dennis Erickson, we say that Dennis Erickson was both the uh, successor and predecessor to Mike Riley at Oregon State. It's remarkable. It's different. I mean, I kept thinking at the time when Bob DeCarolis hired uh, Mike Riley the second time, I kept thinking to myself, like, you know, in what college, in what university in America would, a, would an athletic director who got jilted by a football coach understand that, maintain a good enough relationship with said coach, that when his successor leaves, that guy becomes a candidate again. And I remember it was Dan Hawkins who had gone uh, on to Boise State and then Colorado who became um, a, uh, a candidate, and it was the return of Mike Riley, and Bob DeCarolis did that and then launched the Raising Reeser Stadium construction project. It was unthinkable for a program that had 28 straight years of not going to a bowl game Oregon State suddenly was adding seats, adding luxury suites, adding loge boxes, adding you know premium seating on the east side of the stadium, in a capital campaign that was frankly, uh, you know, beyond anyone's wildest dreams at Oregon State. And I watched it happen, and I watched the cranes come in, and I watched Bobby DeCarolis with a hard hat on, put up that east side of the stadium, and then start talking about all right, we got to finish the stadium and get to the west side. He got distracted by a basketball practice facility at Oregon State that, frankly, needed to be built. And in the process of building the basketball facility, DeCarolis did something remarkable. The story goes, and I don't know how many people know this, that basketball practice facility at Oregon State is multiple stories. It has two basketball courts, one on top of the other. There's a men's court and a women's court. And so each of the teams has its own dedicated practice court and and they are stacked at Oregon State that wasn't the original plan for the building and in fact when they went to to uh, build that thing you know they they got quotes on it they got you know a feasibility study everything the design was all done and then there was some discussion between the men's and the women's coaches at Oregon State at the time about all right who's going to get the practice court at what time and Bob DeCarolis was kind of watching this go on he just said how much to put another deck on there and he built a second deck. I mean, it's like that's Builder Bob. That's what he did. He expanded the weight room by 15,000 square feet. He built a, uh, a student academic center uh, for athletes. Um, and he did all of that in his time as athletic director at Oregon State. And so I was delighted yesterday to see the news that Oregon State is inducting Bob DeCarolis, the former athletic director, into the school's Hall of Fame. Mike Riley going in in the same class, kind of fitting. Stephen Jackson, running back, going into the same class uh, fitting. Mike 
Mike Hass, the wide receiver, is going in, the 2016 women's basketball team that, you know, DeCarolis' fingerprints were all over the success of that team. You know, he left in 2015, but that 2016 team really was born from the practice facility and the investment in women's basketball and, you know, frankly, the hire of Scott Ruick. And and a lot of success at Oregon State has Bob DeCarolis' fingerprints on it. So, you know, I went uh, a couple of weeks ago to have coffee with DeCarolis. He's living in a senior living community in Sherwood. He uh, is still dealing with Parkinson's. We sat in a Starbucks coffee shop, and we had a long conversation. I wrote all about it today at johnconzano.com. If you have a free subscription or a paid subscription, you got it today, delivered in your email inbox. But it was, uh, it was a great conversation. He's got a lot to add. He's got a lot of, he has got a lot of thoughts on his mind, and he's a very collaborative thinker. He asked me all about the Pac-12. He had his own viewpoints, too, on what the Pac-12 and what George Klyovkov should be doing next. And I wrote that column today, and I was blown away. I heard from Dave Hickey, the athletic director at Arizona, who reached out to me and said, hey, you know, Bob, you know, Bob was always so good to me. I got to know him when I was a deputy AD at Oregon, and, you know, I hope he's doing well. And uh, I heard from Greg Byrne, the Alabama athletic director, who's currently sitting uh, at Alabama as the AD, and he said, hey, man, could you have DeCarolis' number? I'd love to get in touch with him. And so I connected those two guys, and I heard from a couple of uh, DeCarolis' own deputy ADs when he was at Oregon State who said, you know, just got off the phone with Bob. He says, everybody at the senior living, assisted living community is buzzing about your piece. And they had no idea that Bob DeCarolis was living, you know, as the guy down the hallway in this, uh, you know, assisted and independent living facility in, in uh, Sherwood where, you know, he's getting treatment for his Parkinson's. And, you know, he's, he's trying to be part of a community. Now, when I visited with him, it really did not surprise me. When he told me that he had been put in charge of some of the games, like card games, they have card tournaments, they have uh, a poker tournament, they had a you know game night thing, and he, you know Bobby Carroll is the AD who built research stadiums uh, east side and built the back- basketball practice facility is now running games at the senior living center in in Sherwood at the age of seventy, um, and you know I just kind of sat with him. We talked about kids, we talked about life, and it was a great conversation, but. You know, it reminds me of how fleeting this all is, this, all this stuff that we think is important on a daily basis. And i got to be honest, I finished writing the column, and, um, you know, Anna was busy today because her, her dad needed to go get a CT scan, you know, before he moved from Taiwan. For those who listen to the show all the time, you know that my father-in-law moved from Taiwan uh, to Oregon, and he's now living with us. And she wanted to get a, get a CT scan because he had a fall before he left Taiwan, just to make sure everything was okay. And, you know, she was about to take the kids out the door, and she was going to go, and the kids were going to go to the hospital and go to the doctor or whatever and get the seats to watch Grandpa get the CT scan. And I said, hey, you know, give me the two little kids. You know, I'll take them. Let me take them to lunch. And she said, you know, are you sure? Like, you know, you're busy. you got stuff to do. And you know what was ringing in my mind? The words of Bob DeCarolis. Because when I went to see him, like, when we sat down, it was like, you know, yeah, you, you did Research Stadium, and, yeah, you did – you know, you you were there with, to fuel Pat Casey and baseball, and you know you could go through a list of his accomplishments, and you you know he really is a big part of why Oregon State is where it is today. The contributions of Bobby D or Builder Bob or whatever you want to call Bob DeCarolis, his contributions immense, 
And, you know, he he probably could have filled all of our time talking about that stuff. But, you know, he talked about his three daughters. He talked about my three daughters. He asked questions about them. He told me, hey, remember when you were coaching soccer and your oldest daughter? And he said, you remember the advice I gave you? And I said, I sure do. Because Bob DeCarolis told me, he called me up when he heard I was, I was coaching my six-year-old, then six-year-old daughter's soccer team 14 years ago. And he said, listen, you got one job. Your job is to make her want to come back tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, that's your job. Make her want to uh, return tomorrow. So your job is to make it fun. And uh, I said, okay, I got it. That's my mission. It was a great reminder from a guy who had coached college sports himself and was around millions and millions of dollars of decisions on a daily basis that at the core, at the fundamental core of everything that we do is, you know, first of all, you know, you better have joy in your sports. And secondarily, uh, uh, you know, you remember, don't ever forget, even as especially as the parent of a kid when you're coaching a team, that your job is simply to make this uh, experience so enjoyable that the kids want to come back the following day. And so I took my, you know, two youngest daughters uh, to lunch today, and I sat there and I thought, you know, Bobby D's got some wisdom. Because for all those decisions that he made back in the day, building the East Side, he, I mean, look at what Scott Barnes, his predecessor, at Oregon State, a couple of few ADs after him, really. Um, Todd Stansbury came in there for a bit. But, uh, you know, Barnes gets hired, and, um, you know, he picks up the baton that Bob DeCarolis set down for him. And I think it's really cool that, you know, Reeser Stadium will get, on September 9th, a grand reopening in the vision of, hey, here's the stadium that you imagined back in the day when you inherited a football program that was not worth a damn, helped turn it into a really passable, interesting uh, entity that Beavers fans were proud of, so proud of that they invested in. And then now 20 years later, here comes the, the finishing touches as the half a stadium that was Research Stadium becomes a full stadium again. I mean, I just think it's a remarkable reminder of the contributions of Bob DeCarolis, and I'm glad that Oregon State is honoring this Hall of Fame class and including him in it. And, you know, I really do think that it was interesting. You know, he told me when I had uh, when I had coffee with him, he said there are, there are 40 men who live in the senior assisted living unit that he's in. There's 40 guys in there. Um, you know, and there's some couples in there and whatnot, but there's 40 guys of the 40 men who are living there, nine of them are named Bob. And, the, you know, Bob was like, you know, it's really interesting. We got nine Bobs in here. Well, none of the other Bobs knew that Bob DeCarolis was the athletic director at Oregon State. They didn't know the guy was sitting, you know, this, and, and suddenly today, apparently, everybody woke up to it. So we will get Bob DeCarolis on the show. Get him on the show. Maybe closer to the induction ceremony this fall. But he's such a humble guy. And I, I'll never forget, you know, all the conversations we had over the years of, about sports. And sometimes we had disagreements and we were at odds. But I called him last night to congratulate him. And, uh, you know, he picks up the phone and I said, hey, I just wanted to tell you, you know, you, you had this coming. You deserve the victory lap. You know, when I walk into Research Stadium, it's Bobby Carlos I think about. Like Dennis Erickson had great success. But it was fleeting, right? He left. Uh, Jonathan Smith, he was a quarterback on the team. Now he's back, yeah. But I look at it and I go, you know, this is Bobby D's creation. It was his brainchild, 
Research Stadium. And he's so humble, he would never take credit for it. He, uh, last night, was like, you don't know all these people that were involved. There was a lot of deputies. There was a lot of my support staff. And, you know, he started pouring over all the people who had contributed. But I think in the end, like, you know, for me, like, I got to give credit to him. And I also just think it's such a amazing, special, authentic thing for somebody who is battling Parkinson's, who is suffering from um, obvious, you know, a, a disease that is insidious. And, um, you know, he was talking to me at the Starbucks. He went up to, you know, went to use the restroom one time and he said, just, you know, watch me here. He's using a walker. He said, watch me here because he said, I only use the walker because I freeze up. And I said, what do you mean you freeze up? Like, I'd never heard that. And apparently what happens is, you know, mid-stage and advanced stage Parkinson's patients uh, encounter this condition of freezing. And some of them have described it as their feet being, their shoes being glued to the floor, where suddenly they just, their upper body wants to move and can move, but their feet just don't respond, and they are frozen in place. And some of the patients will fall down, some of them will lose their balance, others will just stand there. And if you ever see somebody that you think has Parkinson's and they're just standing somewhere, uh, frozen in, in a, you know, a statue-like state, you know, that freezing condition does happen and DeCarolis pointed out he said for him it happens when he goes through the threshold of a door or he says when he realizes he's in a tight space and he has to turn he has a decision to make it's almost like there is a disconnect between the body and the brain and he says you know he just kind of freezes there for a second and I looked it up after I met with him and in fact it, it is a common thing that Parkinson's patients who are mid to late stage Parkinson's patients will encounter. They will encounter this this freezing, and it does happen with transitions in the room and thresholds and turns in hallways. And, you know, he said to me as he was going into the Starbucks, and, you know, everybody knows the Starbucks bathrooms. Like, often there's a hallway, and in the one that we were in, there was just kind of this little cove, and the men's room is on the left, women's room is on the right. And he says, just watch me here. As I go in here, and he goes, this is the kind of situation where I will sometimes freeze, and he didn't freeze, but I've never stopped thinking about that. Those, And for him, for him to be so candid in talking about that and be candid about, you know, he's living, he's not in full-time assisted living. He's in independent living slash assisted living, he says. But for him to talk so openly about it, so authentically about his own battle, to me is is really inspiring. We got a great show for you today. We're going to get a repeat guest. Tom Crean wants back on the show. I know you're going to be delighted with it. He was fantastic last week in just talking about basketball and talking about coaching. But after the show last week, he reached back out to me and he said, you know, the draft's coming up Thursday. He said, I was watching all those guys because, you know, remember, he was working as an analyst on, on TV, uh, you know, evaluating college football or college basketball games. So Crean says, bring me back on. Let's talk about the guys at the top of the draft and the guys in the first round and kind of where I see them. So Tom Green's going to come on the show. And if you're a Blazer fan trying to figure out what the Blazers should do at number three or what they should be hoping for at number three, Tom Crean can break it down. We'll talk Scoot Henderson. We'll talk Brandon Miller. We'll also talk what he sees later in the draft, maybe in the 20s, where the Blazers will get a second pick. And maybe we'll ask him for a sneaky good second-round selection. Tom Crean will evaluate some talent coming up. Got a great show for you today. If you want to read my column about Bobby D., Bob DeCarolis, you can go to johnconzano.com. Uh, but coming up next, we're going to play some Punch It audio, talk some NFL, 
NBA draft, of course, and Penny Hardaway suspended three games. Why did he get suspended? I'll tell you in the next segment. A lot of courage it takes. Uh, you know, I look at people like Brian Grant, Michael J. Fox, Bobby Carolis, all dealing with Parkinson's and uh, dealing with it very publicly. Stephen, uh, before I move on to Punch It Audio, I want to ask you about that. You know, I had coffee with the Carolis. He's just, he's very outspoken, very candid about it all. Uh, I don't know that I would have the strength to do that. I'm just being honest. Yeah, no, I I can't even imagine. Uh, that's the thing, you know. Uh, I, I try to think about that, too, when I'm getting down in my life about anything. It's like, you know what, there's so many other people that are so much stronger in such worse situations than I am. I need to be better, but I'm with you. Like, I don't know how, how, I, would adju- how I would address that if that was me. Like, would I be out in the open with it, public with it? It's, it just shows strength that people have um, in this world, and, that's, and I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I... Uh... I think that, uh, you know, I'd like to get him on the show, talk to him about it. But uh, also, I um, it was interesting when I went to write it because I wanted to be really respectful and delicate with it, you know, and I was really being careful in how I kind of framed, you know, his battle with Parkinson's because part of the story is, you know, that he's been open and he's sick and, you know, he's battling and fighting. And then part of it is, you know, he's a, he's a normal person that's very relatable and a lot of Oregon State fans fondly remember his his leadership in their athletic department i think they were grateful for it but you know to walk that line a little bit um we're going to play some punch it audio uh adrian wojnarowski talking about the blazers where's their mindset right now plus uh penny hardaway suspended two games by the ncaa i'll tell you why coming up let's do this We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN. He says the Blazers' thought process is interesting. What are they going to do? What are they going to do if... Brandon Miller goes at number two. What are they going to do if Scoot Henderson goes at two? Here's Woj. Well, for Portland, listen, they're going to continue to talk with teams around the league to see is there a deal built around that third pick and certainly potentially other assets uh, that makes sense uh, to give up such a valuable piece of real estate. There's a third overall pick in a draft that most see as a three-player draft. Now, history may not remember it as that, but that's where it is this week. Uh, and so I think if Portland was going to trade out of that, they're going to have to get a significant return. I think your margin of error, and especially in a smaller market like Portland, to have a rookie-scale contract uh, with a player that you think has all-star potential. But certainly, they want to build around Damon Lillard. That's been their focus. And so I think they'll go right up to the clock uh, on Thursday night, offers uh, and I think outreach from team, teams tends to get more serious the closer you get to a deadline, whether that's uh, the draft, whether that's a trade deadline, uh, people start to give you their best offers. And so Portland may not have gotten the best offers that are going to come to them, uh, but they will here in the next 24 hours or so. Uh, this is a significant decision, certainly, for this organization, for Damian Lillard's future in Portland uh, but certainly, if Brandon Miller is off the board at number two, I think Scoot Henderson is certainly very prominent in their plans in Portland. 
Look, uh, Scoot Henderson, Brandon Miller, I think, you know, the Blazers don't have much of a choice at three. They pick who's left. You know, we'll talk about that with Tom Crean coming up, get an evaluation on that. But it looks like the Blazers have cooled the trade talks surrounding Damian Lillard, or maybe they just don't like the deals that are out there. And, you know, they're intent upon making this pick. Scoot Henderson uh, talking about, uh, you know, Whatever he's going to do as a rookie, he says whatever playing time he gets, he's going to kill. Here's Scoot. I'm ready to contribute, you know, wherever I go. And I think I can, you know, help Dave. You know, help, you know, it's not help Dave, but help that organization as a whole. Uh, go there and being a young guy to and, and embracing that and, you know, just coming in there with, with a voice and, you know, just trying to maximize my, my play time. And, you know, whatever, whatever play time I get, I'm going you know, to go there and kill. Yeah, whatever playing time he gets, he's going to go in there. He's going to kill. I mean, I think he's got the right mindset, the right attitude. Steven, you like Scoot if he's the guy? Uh, yeah, I like Scoot if he's the guy. If he falls the three, which it you know seems like today, you know, could change tomorrow. But as of today, it looks like he's going to be the third pick in the draft. If it's the Trailblazers, I, I do like his mindset, his mentality that he has um, of being that guy and wanting to be a killer. Now, it, it, there's still a lot of questions on how does, how does him and Dame fit together? I think they can figure it out, and Scoots even said certain things, like you know, he thinks he can play with Dame, and you know, he said all the right things. Remains to be seen, but I think if that's how it works out and the Trailblazers have the third pick in the draft, they're not going to trade it, and Scoot Henderson's on the board. I think that's about as good as you can get if you're a Trailblazers fan. Yeah, and I think the Blazers have an opportunity. Do they get better no matter what at three as long as they don't do anything squirrely? It just kind of feels like... You know, they're probably going to get better. Adrian Wojnarowski continued talking about Portland. He says on the Pat McAfee show that the Blazers have shut down talks about trading Damian Lillard. Punch I think Miami, uh, they're going to be very anxious to watch what happens in Portland to see if there's any point this summer where Damian Lillard becomes available. He's not available now. He says he wants to be in Portland, and the Blazers have shut down anybody who's called about the possibility of trying to trade for him. Uh, but certainly, uh, Pat Riley is always going to be real aggressive in trying to improve his team. Uh, listen, they want to make that last step. I'm sure they're going to be continue to be real active this summer. Look, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think if there's a Damian Lillard conversation to be had, it happens tomorrow as part of the draft day. Feels like that is down the road. Uh, let's see what this team does because there's much more to the Blazers' plan than, you know, just the number three pick. It's what do they do at 23? What do they do at 43? What do they do with some of their eroding assets on their own roster? And I think uh, that's that's yeah. the one thing that we can come away with today is that it doesn't. It's very unlikely Dame's going to be moved by tomorrow by draft day. And, and you know, Mike or Mark Spears came out and he said that Dame and Scoot have been talking regularly. Uh, having conversations, talking about maybe what the future could hold between the two. So it really does seem like, you know, we've talked about is it time to trade Dame or not? It's not going to happen tomorrow, but, you know, just check back in the summertime. But it looks like Dame will stay at Portland Trailblazer at least through tomorrow. Dan Orlovsky talk, uh, talking on the Dan Patrick Show about uh, Aaron Rodgers to the Jets. How much does this elevate the Jets? Punch it. Aaron going to the Jets immediately vaults them into the conversation with the, the the Kansas City Chiefs. And I don't know if we've really appreciated how big a deal that is. We're talking about a team that's gone to the AFC title game five years in a row. We're talking, they're, they are a, a pseudo dynasty. Maybe they're not the New England Patriots for 20 years dynasty. 
And to think that one 40-year-old quarterback coming to a team immediately puts that team there with the one that's gone to five AFC title games, that's a really big deal. Yeah, it's a really big deal if it happens. I mean, you're talking about not just duplicating you know, one position, elevating one position. The Jets would have to get better at multiple positions. People forget how good Kansas City was on the other side of the ball. They forget how much production they got out of you know their running back position despite not paying a whole bunch of money there and, and how good the offensive line ultimately performed when, when the chips were down against a very good front in the Super Bowl of the Philadelphia Eagles. I, I think it's a little much to say that Aaron Rodgers going to the Jets immediately puts the Jets on par with the Kansas City Chiefs. That doesn't make them a Super Bowl champion, but it gives them a shot. Look, uh, you know, and I, I know what he's selling here. He's selling hope. And you can only sell two things in sports. You can sell proof of performance and hope. So he's peddling hope here. I mean, are they even the best team in their own division? I mean, you look no. at that, the Bills, Dolphins, even the Patriots. We, we, we They're didn't... interesting, yeah. right? Exactly. They're just more interesting all of a sudden. Seems so, like high but... praise for uh, you know for for Aaron Rodgers, who's coming off a season where he struggled a little bit. I, I think part of it is we're talking about a, new, a team that is based in New York. And we're talking about a national broadcast that, that is blowing it up, the Dan Patrick Show. So Spencer McLaughlin talking on the Locked On Pac-12 podcast. He's talking about Oregon State. If San Diego State and SMU are added, Spencer McLaughlin says, this has to make Oregon State feel good. What does he mean? Punch it. I think with both of those schools coming in, I don't see them as you know automatically superseding Oregon State from a from a football standpoint doesn't mean they couldn't have individual seasons where they're better but I think that that's a position where Oregon State has to honestly feel pretty good going forward thinking about the prospect of adding San Diego State and SMU and thinking okay where can we fit into the landscape of the Pac-12 you know football wise it's at the very I mean they're already for the last couple of years in the upper half and I think they really kind of entrench themselves in, in that category going forward if this is the move that the Pac-12 makes. Look, I, I think Oregon State's already there. And, and I like Spencer, and I like his podcast. But I think, I think Oregon State's there. I think right now we're talking about Oregon State as a top-five team. We're already talking about them being entrenched as one of those teams. So I don't think we need to uh, look you know, too deeply into it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, San Diego State is interesting to me because – I don't think they would as would compete in football as consistently early as people believe. Yes, two years ago, San Diego State had a great non-conference record against the Pac-12, uh, you know, and and lit it up. But you know, it's a big leap to go from building Snapdragon Stadium to uh, you know funding an NIL collective that is trying to keep men's basketball relevant to landing a bunch of talented players. I think San Diego State would be okay as they enter the Pac-12, but I don't see them as a top half. SMU is different. SMU could be scary. SMU's got a collective that could be so well-funded that I think it could scare everybody except for Oregon. And and keep an eye on that because I think that could be um, a possibility. If, if SMU gets into the Pac-12, I'm a little bit uh, leery of their collective and the buying power of their collective. I think 
I think they have the the potential to be right behind Oregon. And recruiting wise, do you think that it, it helps or hurts you know some of these Pac-12 schools who have gone into Texas and gotten some players now? If SMU's in the Pac-12, does that does that hurt the other Pac-12 recruiting schools, or does that help SMU because they're going to stay in state? You know, you look at Oregon State; they've had a rich history going into Texas and grabbing guys. Does that hurt a team like Oregon State uh, recruiting wise? I don't think it hurts them, but I I just think a team located in Texas that's got a blank check from an NIL firm is a dangerous team. You know, that's that's a team that I'm looking at going, eh, you know, like I'm not I'm not sure if the Pac-12 knows what it's biting off here because I think ultimately there could be a uh, there could be some problems there. Adam Schefter talking about 49ers quarterback Trey Lance. Can they trade Lance? Schefter says, well, there's not a lot of market for Trey Lance. Punch it. There really was never a lot of interest in Trey Lance for what they gave up and what they get back, which is not very much at all. It, it doesn't make sense to trade him. There was no trade market, and Kyle Shanahan has said that they didn't have any trade talks with teams. He's not going there. He's not going anywhere right now. He's there. Now, I will say this. Sam Darnold signed with the 49ers on the first day of free agency. And if there's a player signing with the team on the first day, that tells you that the team really liked that guy. And they really did like Sam Darnold. He was looking at a couple of different options. He chose the 49ers. But let's also be very clear that Brock Purdy, if he's healthy, he's the guy on opening day. He's the starting quarterback. He's the number one. Yeah, look, I think the Niners have a crowded room. I think they probably loved Lance so much they went up and got him. They got a lot invested in him. But they have to feel really good about what Brock Purdy did and then they apparently feel solid with Sam Darnold. They have a problem here in that they have a player who they value more than anybody else in Trey Lance. And I don't know how you move that guy ultimately because um, you know he does, nobody else values him. And you can't and you can't let him go because of what you have invested in him. So you just kind of have to wait and hope and and hope that he develops and blossoms into the player you thought he once was. Isn't it a catch twenty two? Because we've never seen him play, and the only reason, only way he can get value is by playing. But the Forty ers already have him as the third string like we'll never see him actually play so the value will never get recouped yeah it's going to be really hard to see him on get getting on the field and i think that to me is uh, ultimately the problem that they face with him that's punch it audio we have our big splash coming up top of the hour tom crean breaks down the draft prospects leave it here well we are uh, 24 hours away from the nba draft how are you feeling steven you feeling any better today than you were yesterday yeah feeling i'm feeling better you know, you and me were talking about it yesterday, and it's like, you know what? The Blazers, they can't really screw up the third pick that much, right? Like, they're going to— Can seems, they, though? It seems like they're probably, I mean, probably going to take a draft pick, and I think that's the best choice is to actually draft somebody, whether it's uh, Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller, whoever falls in their lap. It doesn't seem like they're going to trade it. doesn't seem like they're going to trade Dame. They're not going to make too many big moves, I don't think, tomorrow— uh, so I, you know, I'm I'm starting to feel a little bit better that nothing crazy is going to happen. I'm going to be mad. Get, all right, give me an idea. If they go off the board, let's say they uh, don't pick Brandon Miller or Scoot, and they're at three, and they surprise. Mm. Who popped into your head? <laughs> well, it was a trade, and uh, it would be for you, like. You don't think at three they that there's a chance they go they do something wonky. No, I don't. Um, <laughs> the only way that happens is if Scoot Henderson would go two. The I think Amen Thompson might be the, yeah. maybe a pick, but I don't. I don't really think that. I think it would be more a trade, and it would be for a guy like Pascal Siakam, 
um, and trying to get him because they've if been trying to go with if they go with uh, Thompson. Are you going to be disappointed? They pick him third, and Brandon Miller goes fourth. Um, I won't be, I won't be disappointed because I'll be happy that they made the draft pick, and that they're going to invest in a younger player at the third pick. And you know what? If they think that he's the best option, I got to go with it. I don't think he is the best option at three, so I'll be upset for that reason. But I won't be too upset because I'll just be happy that they made the draft pick and not traded for you know a veteran who's going to be the third best player on the team. All right, we'll go with that. I'm asking Tom Crean about uh, his uh, his his projections of Miller versus Scoot, how they fit. He's watched them all. What else do I need to ask Crean about? Like, what's on your mind, Stephen? If we're just talking players, personnel, he's watched all the college players. Hell, he's coached against a lot of them in the SEC and other places. But, um, you know, who we who do we want to ask Tom Crean about? Yeah, I'm more interested in, the, you know, the 23rd pick. You know, the Blazers okay. have that draft pick. I think – We've both come to the conclusion like it could be traded, but I think the Blazers also could get somebody valuable at that spot. We saw last year, or even in the playoffs, you know, for the Nuggets, Christian Brown was, you know, a three-year guy at Kansas. I think there's guys out there, 23, right around there that you can get that are role players that can fill specific roles. Um, there's a guy at Marquette, and he's very familiar with Marquette. Um, he has a, I can't think of his name on the top of my head, uh, but I've, you know, seen him play. Really good defender, like really big, really long athletic defender. Um, I, I'd be really interested to hear what he has about, thought about him. I wrote about him the other day uh, over at 750thegame.com of one of the guys the Blazers should target with 23. I think, you know, just looking at the Blazers' defense, they need to get some defenders. So um, it's one of those one of those things where you don't necessarily notice it. You know, you and me, maybe not every single day you're watching college basketball, who the best defenders are, but... Yeah. A guy like how, about Tom, a, how about a guy like Derek Lively, uh, Duke center, big guy, rim protector, but he's you know a couple of mock drafts have them the Blazers picking him to back oh, up Yusuf Nurkic. I think that'd be great. Um, he's he's kind of rising up the draft boards a little bit. He's a guy who was one of the top prospects coming into high school. Uh, wasn't great at Duke, but showed a lot of promise. Really athletic. So yeah, I, I you know the Blazers need good athleticism. So that's why I like Scoot Henderson. That's why I would like a guy like Derek Lively. You know, bring some athleticism to this team. It's something they've been missing. Nurk's not that type of athlete. Um, even Dame at this age. You know, he's not like the explosive athlete he once was. I think they need some explosiveness on this basketball team. All right. We'll see what happens. We'll talk to Tom Crean about it. Blazer fans, yesterday on the show, I felt a little bad at the end of the show because I felt like I sat around and I basically nitpicked the organization and you know, undermined the faith that you have in the organization. And, I, you know, I don't want to do that because I would like nothing more than the Blazers to get draft day perfectly right and walk away with multiple players, better roster, deeper, better, more exciting. Blazer fans feeling good about the team. I would love nothing more than for all those things to happen. Um, that said, my prevailing theory over the last 20 years has been, hey, if you have smart people making the decisions who are competent, good at their jobs, left alone to work, given autonomy, you know, you give a smart person some autonomy, what do they do? They go out and they flourish, and and uh, and they, uh, they end up uh, – they end up, uh, you know, making you glad that you put them in that position. That's what good leaders do. They put uh, they put competent, smart people in those positions, and then they let them work. Uh, speaking of guys who are let to work, Penny Hardaway has been suspended. Memphis basketball coach. He's got three game suspension over recruiting violations. Um, apparently, the NCAA frowned upon two in home visits he made. Uh, in 2021 with a recruit from the high school class of 2023. Um, they did not name the prospect, but apparently um, a Memphis assistant coach 
conducted an in-home visit with the prospect. Two weeks later, Penny Hardaway held an in-home visit with the recruit. According to the rules, coaches can only have one in-person contact at the prospect's school. Uh, they penalized Hardaway because uh, of his direct involvement and his failure to monitor his assistant coach. They said it's a level two thing. He said he didn't know. The NCAA said ignorance of the rules is not an excuse. Um, I'm I'm really struggling with some of this stuff. Like it feels like the old world of the NCAA uh, meeting the new world of the transfer portal NIL. Because on one hand, like it appears, I know there are rules, but it appears to a lot of us that with the transfer portal and name image likeness, there are no rules. And then suddenly we've got well. You know, if you're meeting with a junior class of 2023 and 2021, and you can only do one in-home visit, and by the way, the head coach can't be part of that. It just feels to me like that's, you know, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? feels like the NCAA is really cracking down and also has lost total control at the same time. So I, uh, Penny Hardaway got three games. He has had some problems. You know, Memphis previously was the subject of an investigation due to, uh, you know, violations involving James Wiseman and some other recruits. And, um, you know, last fall, the, they concluded that Hardaway did not violate NCAA rules when he provided extra benefits to three prospective student-athletes. Um, you know, keep in mind, he's a philanthropist in Memphis, and uh, he can't help it if he's also generous to uh, guys that can play basketball. That's kind of like, that's the way of the world. That's how it's working. So Penny Hardaway um, in trouble, but not really. Um, so, But suspended. So... Uh, the commercial appeal, the newspaper there in Memphis called it a self-inflicted wound. I don't know. Like, they suspended him for three games for that. Like, eh, I get it, you know. But I also think, like, hey, let's step back and evaluate what the rails are off in college athletics. And are we are we still counting in-home visits while also allowing collectives to go out and spend seven figures on players? Like I don't know, Stephen, am I am I giving him too much uh, too much room here? No, I think you're right on in this, and it doesn't make sense because with you know we've talked about this a little bit yesterday about you know the power that the players are getting, and it's great, like that, that's the way they should be getting. But at the same time, you're gonna have to start recruiting younger and younger, right? Like I, you know, people are gonna be reaching out to these players trying to get NAL deals, and if you're a Penny Hardaway, you know. What, 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 is, is it really that big of a deal to be going to an actual person's house as a junior rather than them you know, visiting that school? Like that was the difference is they went to the house rather than the school. I just – I don't know. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Three games seems like a lot for just such a minor infraction. Yeah, and I think uh, if you are uh, – you know, I just remember covering Jerry Tarkanian and Tark would always kind of say like, you know, hey – the NCAA, you know, the last thing you want to do is make them mad. Man, they will come after you, and it feels like they're mad. Maybe the NCAA is a little mad at Penny Hardaway that they didn't get him the first time around. Um, you know, and look at, uh, you know, I always like when, like, high-profile NBA players, like Penny Hardaway was a star player in the NBA. I like when you see guys like that that become head coaches that you actually know are, like, hands-on as a head coach. And I think, like, you know, Juwan Howard's taken some, taken some criticism because – he has uh, he has blown a gasket a few times, you know, during games or in the course of being a coach. But I also think, like, you know, if we're just if we're being real about, you know, Penny Hardaway, it's it's just nice to see a player who's who's going and like Damon Stoudemire, who's you know going to be at Georgia Tech. Like I I like seeing these guys 
find another career and another life that isn't reliant upon them, like sitting in a Walmart signing 8x10 autographs long after the people are interested in having their autograph. So good for him for doing that. And I love that he had Larry Brown on his staff last year. Washington has now hired Larry Brown. Did you see that, uh, Stephen? Like Washington, the Washington Huskies hiring Larry Brown, putting him in the uh, alongside uh, their men's basketball coach to kind of mentor him. It's kind of the step before the coach gets fired. You know, they bring in, you know, let's bring in the, you know, the 80-year-old, 75-year-old coach and have him mentor you a little bit so we can say we did everything we possibly could do before before we let you go. Yeah, you know, they, they wanted to save money, not fire Mike Hopkins. So they're like, you know, we'll bring, a, we'll bring in an advisor and, uh, you know, hopefully hopefully figure it out. And then when it doesn't work out, it'll be easier to fire him the next season. So, yeah, it seems like it's uh, the beginning of the end there over in Washington. Beginning of the end there. And then, uh, you know, it, and again, look, I want to be fair to coaches like, Wayne Tinkle's got a chance, too, this year. You know, he won three games two years ago. He won 11 games last season. What Wayne Tinkle needs at Oregon State is he needs to get to 500. That's what he needs to do. Uh, and, and it's really hard with the transfer portal, and players can see your recent proof of performance. Uh, I think it's, he was really lucky to hang on to Jordan Pope, talented freshman. But Oregon State's got to get better. Oregon State has to get better in number of positions. They, gotta, they have to win games next season, and, and uh, you know, because I don't – I don't know how much more patience Scott Barnes, who is a basketball guy at Oregon State, is going to have with Wayne Tinkle if he doesn't start winning some games. So keep an eye on that because I think uh, that could be a thing at Oregon State next season. But, you know, I like Tinkle. I think he's a good coach. I think he made some terrible mistakes after the Elite Eight run three seasons ago. Uh, yeah. A lot of times in college sports, we see the coaches being good recruiters and not necessarily good X's and O coach. I think it's the opposite with Tinkle. I think he's a great mm. X's and O coach, maybe not the best recruiter, though. There you go. And he, and he added Eric Revenue last year. Revenue, you know, former University of Portland head coach. And I think that was a good hire by Tinkle. But he needs better players. Like, I, I did not love what he did in the portal this offseason. And part of that, you know, we see an assistant coach leaving and saying, hey, we don't have NIL money like others. But. Some of it is you only won 11 games. Like It's really going to be challenging to get guys to want to come play for you when you don't have success. Tom Crean, he's had a lot of success. Made a Final Four. He's next. NBA Draft tomorrow. It's NBA Draft Eve today, I guess. 24 hours away from the draft. A lot of people wondering what the Blazers are going to do. A lot of people who follow college basketball wondering about the best players in the draft. For those of you streaming... Whether you're listening in California or New York or Florida or Iowa or wherever you call us from, uh, if you have a draft player question, you can tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT, and I will pepper our next guest, who is an expert on college basketball and basketball in general, Tom Crean, former Indiana coach, former Marquette coach, a guy whose name uh, is going to circulate here as Jobs Open been kind enough to give us some of his time last week and we're bringing him back for an encore performance tom crean joining us how are you man i'm good john good to be with you thanks for having me again you bet man i wanted to get you back we want to talk about you know you've been closely following college basketball in the last couple years uh you know in one form or fashion or another and talk about some of the players you've seen and and of course the blazers have the three pick we got a lot of blazer fans listening kind of wondering what the Blazers are going to do, whether Brandon Miller is a uh, is the wing they've been looking for for a decade or if Scoot Henderson is a, a player that could play alongside Damian Lillard. And, um, I, you know, maybe maybe we can start at the top of the draft, Coach. Um, you know, let's start with 
First of all, Victor Wembanyama. And we'll get to the Blazers in a second. But, you know, you've seen some of this kid. He is the consensus one pick. What do you see on tape, and what do you think of him? Well, I think a lot of them, and I think one of the things that there's such a durability to him already. I mean, he played, I think it was 62, 63 games, something like that this year. And from everything I've seen, he played in every one of them. And they just got done playing against Monaco for a championship. So, like, this guy's been through everything, plus a trip to the United States to play against the Ignite team. And I think their team got better. Like, Bilal Kulave is a guy that could very well end up in the top ten Tomorrow night, I think he's probably – I'd be shocked if he's not in the lottery. And it certainly wouldn't shock me if, like I said, he's in the top ten. And he got better all year. Their team got better all year. And I think what he does, he knows how to play with his size. He's got incredible quickness. Like when you look at how quick the ball goes from his chest, shoulder area to the rim, there can't be, there can't be three or four people in the world that can get it up there quicker, not just because he's that tall, but because he's so quick. And he's got great, great length. He has tremendous instincts to rebound. I mean, whoever is in charge of rebounding in San Antonio, it'd be malpractice for them not to make sure that he's getting to the offensive glass every time because there's times he doesn't do it because he's on the perimeter, but he's so uncanny and and instinctual at being able to rebound the ball. He's very good for his size at being able to hold you off. Um, He can shoot the ball. He can handle the ball. What I like about him is when he drives it and he passes, he gets out of the way like he slides. He rarely ever charges. Uh, I think he's tired a little bit right now. You could see it in this Monaco series. Like, they did a great job of going into his body and sealing him, and you could see some of his frustration with that and with the referees at times. But he's so young. But I don't think there's any reason, barring injury, that this guy isn't going to live up to, to the hype that, that is surrounds him because he's just got too much skill. I, I uh, As, you know, Blazer fans have pointed out that, you know, they obviously wanted the number one pick, but there's a history in this city with big guys and injuries. And you, bring, you know, you bring up, you bring up Wembenyama. That's not um, funny. It's not that's, funny. It is, that's just it, unbelievably good. Yeah, that's that's a good line. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, you know, I I I like that he's playing and he's playing so many games, but. I've heard other people say, hey, maybe if you're the Spurs, you don't want him playing. If you're coaching the Spurs or you're on that staff, how do you feel about him playing all these games? Oh, I feel good about that. I wouldn't be shocked at all if he doesn't play in the summer league, though. I think they go to Sacramento and to Las Vegas. I could easily see them shutting that down. Uh, I think they'll get him in the gym uh, probably as soon as they can. Uh, they'll get him working with a uh, guy, Jimmy Barron Jr., who uh, played overseas, played for his dad, St. Bonaventure, recently got hired as a shooting coach there. I think he'll be spending a lot of time with him. They've got a really good development staff. They've been through that. Um, it wouldn't shock me at all to see them be very careful with him next year on load management and things like that because he's going to get a lot stronger. I mean, we're going to talk about Scoot Henderson. And I've known Scoot since he was an eighth grader, basically a ninth grader. And if his body transformation in the last two years has been unbelievable. And so you, you look that he went into the G League at 17. He's 19 now. You think about the body change that Victor's going to have. But I think anybody that's read about how he's been trained, what they did, they're so far ahead of the game for most people that age, what they did with his feet, what they did with his ankles, that mobility, that stability. You know, obviously you never say never to an injury. Nobody thought Chet Holmgren would get hurt in the first play of a 
of a glorified summer league game uh, out west last year and missed the season. Things happen. But this guy's instincts, his quickness, his feel are just enormous. But he's young. And, and to watch him in this Monaco session of that Monaco series and see how they went after him and how they there were times he didn't have the strength in the lower body to fight back. And, and he can hold you off with his lower body offensively because he can fight you off when you started nailing him. And he's like a lot of big guys, John. He, he does not like you getting into his lower body. He does not like you sitting on front of him and, and, and getting into him. He, he's, he can catch the ball over the top, but he doesn't like it. That, makes, that doesn't make him uncommon. That makes him very common for most bigs. But I think they'll take their time with him, and I think he'll be fantastic. We're talking to Tom Crean, former Marquette coach, went to the Final Four, Indiana coach, Georgia coach, analyst, uh, kind enough to give us his time. Uh, to Brandon Miller and Scoot Henderson, the guys that mm-hmm. you know, some people see one of them going at two, the other going at three, vice versa, uh, those two guys. Who do you want to talk about first? Well, let's go with Brandon Miller. Um, okay. Let's go with him. I mean, again, you're looking at those two guys. They could pull a shocker somewhere. That I don't know if there's anybody – that really lines up uh, with where their team is right now, with where Portland is, if they keep that pick. I mean, you, you know as well as anybody, there's always, there's always likelihood that they'll get an offer sometime tomorrow or they're sitting on one now that they have to make a decision on, and they'll trade that, especially if they can get a guy that is a legit number two score uh, to, to Damian Lillard if they decide to keep him. But Miller has got uh, tremendous shooting ability. Um, he's like a lot of guys. Uh, he manufactures shots. He invents shots that he doesn't need to take. Uh, and so, therefore, they become off balance. They, he shoots them off his right foot, you know, rather than getting squared up because he's a shot maker. But when he lines it up, when he steps in left or right, when he's ready to shoot the ball, when he drives in a state straight line, uh, he's really, really good. And he's got – he's like a lot of guys. I think I said this last week we were talking. He's like – he, he's not real good on the left side of his body right now. He loses the ball when he goes to his left. He, he'll, he'll drive into traffic. He gets off balance. Uh, not as good crossing it over to his left hand as he is to his right. Uh, a lot of times he'll try to make plays where he leads with his right foot, and then he starts fading to his left because he's a left-foot dominant guy. So he'll struggle with that. So he's going to need, uh, gonna need the, the, the coaching that, that you get in the NBA of doing it right every time but this dude i mean he went to south carolina this year right after everything kind of broke publicly for him and and made a game-winning bucket at the end i think he had over 40 points in the game uh he's just a legitimate bona fide scorer who plays hard for and for a big guy he does a pretty good job of staying low defensively he still opens up way too quick but as far as like help side ability having awareness being able to guard the dribble some He's going to have to be able to do it on guards but at that level. But he's pretty good, and he's a little bit ahead of schedule, I would say, defensively for that age, too. I'm trying to figure out how Scoot Henderson and Damian Lillard fit together on the court, and maybe you can, you can address that. Do sure. those guys fit in your mind? They do, and I'll tell you why. Because, in my mind, because last year, when you look at – and, and there's, some, there's some concerns with last year versus this year for Scoot with improvement to me, but the one thing he did that was so different than this year is he was on the floor a lot with Dyson Daniels, who's in New Orleans, and Jaden Hardy, who's in Dallas. And there were numerous times that he did not have the ball in his hands, and the ball would come to him on offense, 
And so he'd get catch-and-shoot shots. Like, I would think, again, I'm not in Portland, and I'm not, I'm not Scoot's agent. I like him a lot. We knew him from Georgia. We tried to recruit him. I think he's an excellent person, but, and, and he's, he's got unreal speed and explosion. I mean, just unbelievable where that's at. But I would almost want him off the ball as much as possible right now with a good backcourt so that he could use that speed and quickness to attack closeouts. Because, because that's one thing that he didn't – he doesn't do a great job of that. And I think that's something that he's going to need. I think, he, I think he's going to have to become a much better catch-and-shoot shooter. When he's waiting on the ball and he's stepping into it left or right, uh, he's a way better shooter. And, and I think he needs more of that. I think, it, I think it's going to benefit, whether it's Portland, uh, especially when you look at Simons and you look at – I thought the jump that Shaden Sharp made from the beginning of the year to the end of the year was totally uh, – I don't want to say it was disregarded nationally, but it certainly mm-hmm. wasn't talked about enough. Like, he got better. And, I mean, you talk about the explosiveness. He started to read the game better. He can shoot the ball. You put Scoot in that lineup. And the reason Scoot's going to be so successful, I think, in the NBA early is because it's darn near impossible to guard him one-on-one when he's coming downhill. So you can load up on him because he's not a great shooter at times, and and he doesn't want to make the easy pass. And I do think he still struggles in traffic trying to make the passes that he's got to make. And the speed of the NBA game, I don't they can say whatever they want about, about the G League, the speed of the NBA game is night and day just like it is from college. And I think it's going to be different for him to get used to those things. And I think the more that he can play in space, not in traffic, where he doesn't have to deal with all of that, where he can get the ball on kickouts and make plays, I think it's going to be good for his growth if, that's, if it ends up being important. You, you know, you made me think about something. You know, you in college are often trying to project high school or high-level club kids into a college situation now we're talking about college kids into a uh, high-level NBA situation. Uh, when you when you examine those things, what are you looking for? Does it change? Is it different for you as I say that? Like, you know, you're looking for a club kid who's going to contribute in a college situation versus maybe how is a guy going to project to the NBA? Is it athleticism? Is it skills? Is it intangibles? Is it all of that? Well, it's all of that, and it starts with this for me. I mean, outside of this, now, the speed is, a, is a, just like shooting. Okay, makes up for a multitude of sins, as they say. Speed, okay, makes up for a lot of things. And he's got that. So do you have speed? Do you have quickness? But here it is even more than that. And this is what so many guys are missing in college and young players. They're missing alertness and awareness. They're missing being able to do two things at once or go from one thing to the other. Like when I say two things at once, help and recover without popping your feet. Uh, Being able to switch on the pick and roll and then block – the big out as he's rolling to the basket or take him away in a switch rather than just watching the guy drive the ball. The alertness and the awareness is going, it, it, it's not going up, it's going down. So the guys that have that, the guys at a young age that have that alertness, that awareness, especially defensively, it, offensively it's spatial, it's the, it's the spacing, it's being able to cut and move without the ball, uh, it's being able to react to the offensive glass, but defensively is where you get beat. Because you start ball watching in the NBA, somebody's getting an open three or they're getting a back cut layup or dunk, right? And so you've got to have, you've got to have that awareness. Shooting and length are always going to make up for a lot of things. But if you have awareness, and then the other thing that goes in with that, John, is do you have balance, like lower body strength? 
Like right now, like Scoot's a great example. He's got tremendous strength. If there's one thing he improved on from last year to this, it would be his strength. I'm not sure he's any more explosive because he was already explosive. There's such an upside for him to gain more athletically. When you, see, when you would see him as a freshman or sophomore in high school, it was a joke how athletic he was. I had Anthony Edwards at Georgia, and he was the same way, right? Like when he was in high school, it was just ridiculous. Well, we got Anthony to Georgia, and he realized as much as we did that he wasn't close to the athlete that he could be. And he's still not at 21. He's becoming that. Scoot's the same way. Scoot is stronger. I'm not sure he's more athletic. I think when he gets into an NBA, if they're, if they're dead serious about training that lower body, about, about improving his hip flexibility, okay, about getting him stronger, getting his change direction where it's got to be even better, because I think it's taken a little bit of a backseat to his explosiveness and driving, and they build that. And then the thing that I think he's got to have that I don't see right now, John, is I don't think he's got great vision. And some of that shows up in his decision-making. Some of that shows up in his ability to move the ball from one side to the other. I think that's going to be stuff that's going to be absolutely crucial for him. So all those things we're talking about, speed, quickness, alertness, awareness, balance, vision, those are the things that change players. Tom Crean with us, uh, former Georgia coach, Marquette coach, Indiana coach. Uh, I have to ask you, like, you, you recruit a lot of these guys uh, that will end up drafted tomorrow, and you're probably mm-hmm. seeing guys that you saw when they were in high school at, or playing for a club team, and and now you get to see kind of what they turned out and you know where they stand at the next level. That has to be surreal for you and other coaches that kind of watch the per, like the herd of players that you recruited a few years ago now getting drafted. Well, you just it, it's going so fast, and and to have guys like we've had. You know, whether Marquette, we had one early entry at Marquette and Dwayne Wade, and then at Indiana, we had numerous early entries. And then at Georgia, my last two guys there were Nick Claxton, who left. We had him one year after his sophomore year he left to go to Brooklyn, and then Anthony Edwards, obviously, after one year. And and what you have to be able to do with those guys it, when you're recruiting them is you have to be able to project what it's going to take for them to get where they want to go. They all want to be one and done. And at the very least, they want to be two and out, okay? Nobody's thinking about going to college for three years, let alone four. I mean, they can say what they want, but that's the way that it is, especially it's even gotten into the, the upper mid-major level. People think they're leaving that quick. So you have to have a plan for that. And when I watch a lot of these guys that are coming out now, I'm like, where the heck was the plan? Because they haven't improved their athleticism the way that they needed to. Their shooting is not there. For the big guys, so few of them can go out on the perimeter and guard, let alone handle the ball or pass it. You're not getting in an NBA game of any substance when it matters if you can't go out and guard on the perimeter, let alone the post if you're a big man. And you're not going to stay in the game if you don't have some tangible skill like rebounding, playing out of the elbow and a driver pass, being able to shoot the ball. And, like, development, that's, for me, sitting back, especially this year being on television and watching so much of it, that's the stuff that ticks me off. It's so many of these guys, like, they're not getting better. So when they get to the NBA, thank God there's three two-ways now in the NBA rather than just two two-ways. And thank God that most of these teams all have a, a, a G League team right in their vicinity so that they can be coached not only by the G League coaches but by their pro coaches. Because right now, like, this is such a huge developmental draft 
and 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 obviously there's some huge names in it, and there's going to be a number one pick, a number ten pick, a number twenty pick, and so on and so forth. But getting guys into a rotation by January or February, that's going to be few and far between in this draft, and a lot of it is because guys have not made the jumps that they needed to make skill-wise and not just strength-wise, but like we said with Scoop, getting better athletically. The worst thing a great athlete can think is that he doesn't have to do more to build his athleticism. It'd be like, it'd be like a, it'd be a competitive bodybuilder thinking he could take a week off from the weights. Now, he's not going <laughs> to do that. Yeah, it, it, He's not, right? And it's the same thing with athleticism. Guys start thinking they can jump and dunk that they don't have to improve their feet. They don't have to improve their hips. They don't have to have more shoulder flexibility. Yes, you do. And you better have people that are dead serious about building that in them every day. And I think that's what these guys have got to look forward to. And I think you're going to look back at this draft, like most drafts, and in two years, and you're going to see some real shocks two years from now out of some of the guys that will get drafted tomorrow night or not that, drafted. Yeah, the Blazers have – couple of late picks they have one in late in the first round at 23 in addition to having number three um i'm, I'm curious about ucla jaime Jaquez. you know wh- where mm-hmm. does he fit does he fit can he get a shot off in the nba oh i think so he's so strong you know what he's got we lost cream there for a second let's see if we can get him back uh I, I'm dying to know what he thinks of Hawkes, and let's see if we've got him back here in short order. Hate when that happens. You know what he's got? And then I'm going, yeah, I want to know. Oh, Coach, I think we got you back. Go ahead. Go ahead. Start yeah, over. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Hawkes has got he, – he's got tremendous ability. He plays with speed. He's got wide shoulders, and he hits you with that shoulder. And when he comes at you – okay, I've never had to guard him, right? But bottom line, he comes at you, and he hits you. And, and you, one thing I like about him is he's not afraid of the contact, but a lot of guys, when they get hit, they drop their head, they drop their eyes. He doesn't do that. And so he can take the hit, he rebounds, he moves without the ball. I think the NBA spacing, you know, uh, UCLA was very much a college three-point line in the end team. And a lot of college teams are like that, but they very much played at that college line. I think the NBA spacing – is really gonna is really gonna help Hawkins. I, I really do it. He could be, uh, he's the kind of guy that could be this year's Christian Brown that gets in a rotation on a really good team and helps you go deep into the playoffs. Yeah, and I, 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 are there guys that you saw in the last year that you think you know? Give me a sleeper pick, somebody nobody's talking about that you think's gonna have a nice NBA career. I know you see some kids like that. I think in, in the case of like with Portland, I would say if Omax Prosper from Marquette is sitting there or if Noah Clowney is sitting there at 23, mm-hmm. I think those are picks that a year from now they'd be in the lottery. And that's how I felt about Nick Claxton when he came out. He went 31 to Brooklyn. If he waited one more year, he'd have been in the lottery. Right, for his age, because he was ready to go guard at the NBA level. Omax Prosper from Marquette has got he, he, he's he's a rare guy in the sense that six eight six nine he can defend the perimeter he can defend beyond the three-point line he's like Kawhi Leonard in the way that he can defend you with either hand like I thought Kawhi Leonard Paul George Jimmy Butler for bigger wings when they came into the pros were unbelievably good at being able to defend you with either hand I'm not trying to say Omax oh, Prosper is as good as those guys but 
he can defend you. He can block shots. He can challenge a shot with either hand. He can play on both sides of his body. He's got a hitch in his shot that's got to get fixed. You know, when he shoots the ball, he kind of hitches it, and it and it turns out to the right. And I was charting this at probably 80% of his perimeter misses go to the right because of that hitch. So he's got to get that fixed. But I think he's the kind of guy that could get in and be on a on a really good team this year and contribute. And then Noah Clowney, the jump he made from senior year in high school playing club basketball to what he did as a freshman at Alabama was ridiculous. I mean, he became a much better shooter. He was a guy that did very little perimeter play, very little perimeter shooting as a junior in high school. Through his senior year into his freshman year at Alabama, he shot a lot of threes. He didn't shoot a high percentage, but he, but the shot looked good. You know, when your misses are in the rim um, and they're not always off to the side, those are sometimes when you watch a guy and you see a shot, you want to see how he misses. And, you, and if they're in the rim, they're pretty good. Noah Clowney can block shots. He can run. He can defend. And both those kids are tough. And then there's a kid over in Barcelona that just won a championship, James Nagy, who's he's probably going to be a backup for a couple of years. But eventually uh, he is going to be a guy that is going to be able to play in the NBA because he can go outside and guard. He can, he's an unbelievable sprint roller. And I would put him uh, – Derek Lively, I think, is the best role guy, the best sprint roller in college right now going into the draft tomorrow. Najee would probably be right behind him coming from Barcelona. And those guys are all young, and I think those are guys that are going to be steals at, at that range in the draft. Tom Crane, you're the best. I, I'm going to watch the draft differently now because of you. So thank you for that, and we'll bring you back on, and uh, I hope you have yourself a good summer. Well, I appreciate it too, John. Thanks a lot for having me. There he is. Coach at Indiana took Marquette to the Final Four. Uh, also uh, at Georgia. It won't be long before Tom Crean is coaching somewhere in college basketball. Now we're going to watch the draft a little differently. Steven and I will kick it around a little more. Blazer fans, I want to hear from you. What did you hear from Tom Crean that you liked? Who do you like at number three? Who do you like at 23? 503-417-7575. Steven, have you been following the saga of this... Uh, Missing Titanic submersible. The, uh, uh, yeah, the I, Titan. I have the last two starting last night. I, I hadn't really heard about it. I knew I saw some things about the Titanic. I didn't really read into it. And then my wife was like, "Yeah, Stevie, you need to check this out. Like, you would love this story. This would be such up your alley." And I've been checking it out today. It is fascinating. There is. Uh, I can't. I mean, it's like nightmare fuel. Like thinking about it. Um, you know, they're down to hours of oxygen left. And for people who don't know, there was a submersible that was uh, carrying a, a billionaire and, uh, you know, f- some other crew members down to see the Titanic uh, at 13,000 feet below sea level. And um, apparently uh, it has gone missing. And uh, now they are hearing banging sounds every 30 minutes. And... Uh, they are uh, they're saying they don't know the source of the noise, but uh, the Ocean Gate Expeditions um, submersible, it's, you know, it submerged Sunday morning, supposed to travel down to the Titanic wreckage, sitting at uh, about 12,500 feet of depth. An hour and 45 minutes later, it lost contact with the surface ship. It has four days of emergency oxygen supply. And they're down now to hours. It can only be open from the outside. Problem being, even if they do locate it, 
that very few watercraft can go to that depth without imploding. Like a normal submarine can't get down that deep. So there's some questions about how do they get it to the to the surface. Uh, they have searched the surface with planes and search and rescue, and they don't seem to find it. Like, you know, there are five ways, apparently, that it has to uh, drive itself back to the surface level. But, um, man, can you imagine? I mean, first of all, I said this to Anna this morning. I said, can you imagine being trapped inside this submersible? And she said, I don't even want to think about it. And I'm like, it would be horrific. I am thinking about it. I am thinking about what would I do if I were inside of this thing. And, oh, by the way, who are these people who are going down to the bottom of the ocean to see the Titanic? It kind of blows my mind. You know, they're paying $250,000 each to go down and see the wreckage. Just go watch a YouTube video on it. What are you doing? Oh, it's it is it's my hell. It, it would be. Like, it would be terrible. Like, the, the closed, the, just how close they are to everybody and just that one little compartment. It's just, oh, I would... I like I get you know my I get anxious thinking about it. I'm like you, John. I was like I think about it. I'm like man, I am anxious already thinking about this. I, I it is fascinating though. Like to have that kind of money, be like I'm gonna go see the Titanic, and now you know this kind of happens, and there it's so far down they can't just send regular things to go get it. It's it's weird. A Canadian surveillance aircraft has detected underwater noises in the search area, so they're just saying that some remote operated vehicles involved in the search. Uh, are trying to determine the origin of the sound, but so far they have not figured out anything about it. They don't know where it is. I'm kind of. I have so many dumb questions, and some of these are probably dumb. Like, why not have like an? Do they not have an Apple AirTag attached to this thing? Like, you know, they have no GPS, no ability. You know, they've lost communication. I guess when you're at that depth, and you're in something that is uh, made of the uh, material that it is. Um, you know, it is apparently the most lightweight and cost-efficient deep-sea submersible ever made. And uh, it was made by a company in Everett, Washington, that developed it. But down five people aboard, it's been missing. Uh, not the first to risk their lives for at a chance to glimpse uh, the, the shipwreck. But um, I just don't, I don't know. What do you think that's about? What do you think, it like, going down there and... Getting a long way from anything that can give you get you help, it just so you can get your eyes on the Titanic. What is that about? I mean, I guess if you have that type of money, that it'd be something that not many people can go see. Like they would have the experience of saying, "I saw the actual Titanic," rather than watched a video, like you said on YouTube. I don't, I don't get it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. And the fact that this kind of stuff can happen. It is, is one reason why I would never do it. Like, if, if if you're so far down in the ocean, they can't find you. Like, that's a potential hazard, and you're gonna pay two hundred fifty thousand dollars to do it. It doesn't make any sense. Like, why why that would be so interesting to go see? I, I, just, I just don't get it, John. Like, I'm with you. It doesn't make any sense to me. Here are my other dumb questions. Who pays for the search and rescue? They find the people that are involved in this. And unfortunately, like the prevailing theory is that that maybe there was a leak. And the thing just imploded at some level. But uh, we have a former Navy submariner, Ken, who has called in. Ken, you've been in yes, you've sir. been in these you've been in these things. Tell us about it. Yeah. <laughs> what What were your questions? Well, I gotta know. Like, what? It, what? First of all, how do you get over the feeling of being so isolated down there? Like, just the psychology of it. Well. 
from a Navy standpoint, there's so many levels of filtration from your recruitment to boot camp to submarine school to a basic A school to advanced schools. And you're pretty well put to the test before you ever set foot on a submarine. You know, well, give, it, it, I, I want to know what you thought when you first heard of this story. Like, as, as somebody who was a Navy submariner, you know, well, you, you've been there. When, well, for starters, communication, uh, unless, unless they were on a tether and they were hardwired to the surface, uh, communication is pretty iffy because you're, you're not doing it by radio. Mm-hmm. And every, every level of temperature difference on the way down, they're called thermoclines, yeah. uh, affects the way sound travels through the water. So, you know, down to a few hundred feet, yeah, you can, you can pick stuff up, and you can pick stuff up from miles and miles away laterally because the sound will reflect off the surface and it'll bend as uh, it encounters colder water. So you can pick up noise levels from hundreds of miles away. But if you're just going straight down, uh, that can be kind of impenetrable from a, a sonic standpoint. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I get claustrophobic even thinking about the story. Uh, you know, g- give me an idea, because I had heard that the Navy, sh- Navy submarines can only go to certain depths. They just, uh, you correct. know, they, yeah, they don't go down to 12,500 feet below sea level. Uh, they do not. Well, they, they have one that does. Yeah, but windows on a, those. A, you got windows on those things when you were down there or no? Uh, not unless you count the periscope as a window. <laughs> What's the wildest thing you ever saw in the Navy? <laughs> I'm probably not allowed to say. (laughs) Thank you, Ken. Appreciate you calling in. Thanks for your service. You bet. There's Ken. (laughs) He's not allowed to say, Stephen. Now I want to know more. (laughs) I don't don't think I could do it. I I don't even know if I could be on a ship (laughs) above the water. For an extended period of time. Well, I think I've said this before. I'm just the water and the ocean and everything. It's it's not for me. I'm just not a water guy <laughs> like that. Like open water, I, yeah. I'm out on that. Like if you have a controlled environment, like a pool, yeah, I'm cool with that. But when you get in open water, that's that's not my that's not my home. That's not you my house. You know what? Yeah, you sound like me. This is the exact conversation I had with Anna, and I told her I said I don't belong out there. I don't belong. Amid those dinosaurs that are in the water, <laughs> I don't know what they are. They, you know, these are. This is not my place. It's fair game. It's fair game. Whatever happens out there, like you're on their turf, right? Just yeah. like if a shark were to start walking around on land, I feel like it's fair game. Whatever happens to him, but that, you know, they don't do that. They don't walk on Earth yet. Right, it's a good point. I, I, I'm, I don't disagree with you. Like scuba divers, go scuba dive, but it, don't tell me to scuba dive. I'm. It's not for me. It's not my thing. Uh, we talked to Tom Crean earlier. Are you feeling? I'm feeling a little more excited about the 23rd pick after hearing him and the opportunities, like the potential players that could be there that are that would be lottery picks if they just waited one more year. Like, you know, there might be some more opportunity at 23 that the Blazers are going to be intrigued by. I know Damian Lillard's not going to be happy because he's going to get, you know, two 20-year-olds 
added to him uh, uh, you know, in the lineup on picture day. And so he's probably not going to be thrilled about it, but I, I, I'm wondering who the Blazers are going to get at 23. Yeah, I think at 23, you know, Tom Crean hit on it. There, there's some guys that fit some needs for the Portland Trailblazers, and you know, we, he started off talking about Jaime Hawkins. I think he'd be a great fit. I've talked about this numerous times. I think he's going to be a really good NBA player. Maybe not a starter, maybe even a potential starter, but like he's just a baller, and he, he's going to do whatever it has to do to get the job done and he's going to work on his game. And I think, you know, like you said, the openness of the court is going to spread it out. So he's going to learn how to be an open, you know, catch and shoot jump shooter. He's going to play hard defense. I think he's going to do all the little things that you want a guy to do that can play on the wing. Never going to be a star player, but one of those guys that you can play in a big time game and you know, he's not going to make mistakes. Uh, the guy that I forgot his name and uh, Crane brought up, Olivier Max's process. Uh, he's he's oh, yeah, Omax. Omax. He is he's a giant. He's six foot eight, six foot nine, but really long arms, really big. And this is the, one, the most important thing. When you're a big guy in the NBA, you have to guard. You have to guard on the perimeter. And Tom Crean said that you're not going to be you're not going to get on the NBA court if you can't. And uh, Omax, he can do that. That's one of those guys where he can be, you know. I dare I say, like a all league type defender. Now, offensively, he's not very good. He's not a great shooter. He uh, he's okay at cutting to the hoop, but defensively, he would fit a perfect need for the Portland Trailblazers. And I think there's a couple guys like that at the 23rd pick that the Blazers could you know draft and then even say, you know what, you're going to play a little role this season coming to next year and f- fill that wing role uh, off the bench. Well, it'll be exciting to see what happens at the end of the draft. Coming up, uh, we'll talk some college football and the NFL. Leave it here. you got the BFT. Saw a really fun piece in The Athletic from Max Olson about college football uh, recruiting and uh, re-ranking the recruiting classes. I know some NBA people who will re-rank the NBA draft, like if they were going to re-draft Damian Lillard's draft. You know, obviously Lillard would not be the number six pick in in the in the draft. He you know he uh, he would have uh, been a much higher pick in that draft. Like let's go back to the draft that netted the 2012 draft that netted Damian Lillard. Anthony Davis was the number one pick. He went to New Orleans. He probably still goes to New Orleans. Uh, Michael Kidd Gilchrist went second to Charlotte. He doesn't go there. Bradley Beal went third to the Wizards. Maybe he goes there, maybe he doesn't. Deion Waiters went fourth to Cleveland. He doesn't go there. Thomas Robinson went to Sacramento at five. There's your top five. Uh, Two players who made at least one All-Star game, Anthony Davis and Bradley Beal. Now, players in that same draft, Damian Lillard went sixth. He would not be the sixth player picked in that draft. I think he would have went second. You redraft that draft, is he the number two pick? Yeah, I think it's it, you can argue Anthony Davis and Dame, but I think Draymond was in the same draft. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true too. Um, I think Dame goes second though. Yeah, I think Anthony okay. Davis goes one, Dame two, Draymond three. I would put Draymond three, and then you look at players like uh, Bradley Beal and Andre Drummond probably after that. And so in that draft, there's five players who made All Star games. Myers Leonard went at eleven to the Blazers. Yeah, you know, you wouldn't pick him there. You would have taken Draymond Green or Chris Middleton or somebody like that if you were the Blazers going back trying to get the best player. Anyway, redrafting the draft. The Athletic did a fun thing where they regraded the 2019 college football recruiting class. And, you know, it was just really kind of interesting to see, all right, who did it well, who, uh, who sort of, you know, who held up, who didn't. And Oregon's recruiting class was ranked extremely high that year. 
Remember, that was the year that Kayvon Thibodeau chose Oregon. It was a big victory. But I, I think the takeaway after I saw the re-ranking of those classes, my takeaway was, gosh, they were originally the number seven rated class. They ended up, if you re-rated the class, it would have been, uh, they would have rated 15th. And, in fact, that's behind Oregon State that if you re-rated the 2019 class for the Beavers, that included Omar Spates and uh, Nathan Eldridge and Luke Musgrave and Anthony Gold and Joshua Gray. Um, you know, 17 players started games for the program. Nine of them made all Pac-12 honors. And uh, three players, including Musgrave um, and uh, Alex Austin and uh, Nashawn Wright, were, were drafted in the NFL draft. So Oregon State... If we were redrafting or re-rating the class, uh, the 2019 recruiting class, Oregon State had the number 13 class in the country. And Jonathan Smith's the real deal. Like, you got to give him some credit on that. Utah's at 12. Oregon's at 15. Washington's at 16. There's your uh, your re-ranking of the uh, recruiting classes. So I think you got to give some credit. Uh, I, I just love that the Athletic did that. You know, Georgia comes out number one. Ohio State 2, Michigan 3, Alabama 4, Clemson 5. There's your usual suspects. But you got to give some credit there, I think, to Jonathan Smith. And uh, uh, Do we want to play that re-drafting, re-rating the draft game in another way? How about we go back, how about we even look at, like, the 20, let's go to, like, the uh, the 2018 draft. Uh, Luca gets picked third in that draft. Uh, it, it's funny to me to kind of look back at some of the drafts and just see, like, you know, I'm just I'm just kind of sorting through the drafts. It, in, a, in most draft years, three to five players end up being All-Stars. There are three to five All-Stars in this draft, just like any other draft, Stephen. The game is finding those All-Stars. And if you're the Blazers, do you feel good about your ability to go find those All-Stars? And I'll go back. You know, let's go to 2017 because it's a really weird draft. Jason Tatum goes third in that draft. Um, and uh, the top two picks were Markel Fultz and Lonzo Ball. You know, it, there are two teams looking back going, oh, we didn't quite get that right. Um, I don't know. What What do you think of this year's draft? If Victor Wembenyama is an all-star, you know, do you feel good about the Blazers' ability to identify the other one or two of the other All Stars with their picks? I mean, you kind of you kind of have to luck into it a little bit. Um, I don't necessarily think that it's all due to scouting or you know the franchise. I do think you got to luck out. I mean, because you look at you know like the draft you're looking at 2017, Lonzo Ball, number two pick. Like he was looked at as as being you know a really good steady point guard and you know was going to you know be the be the guy in LA and be the face of the franchise and now he has a knee injury where he may never play again and so i think you just got to get lucky a little bit so i do have faith that the blazers can find that guy at number 3 because your the chances of finding that guy are so much higher when you have a top 3 top 5 draft pick i mean you go through all these drafts and basically when you're redrafting players it's very rare that you're going to say the number 1 guy is outside of the top five, even in the Damian Lillard draft, right? Like we just went through it. You could argue he number one, but Anthony Davis is probably the number one pick still. So like, I still think that you have a top five pick, you have a chance to draft that guy and it's going to be a lot better odds to get that pick. So I do have faith, John. I do have faith that the Blazers can find one of those all-stars with the third pick. 
Well, I, I think the fact that they're sitting at three makes it easy for them just in this draft. I mean, I, I, I would I, I wouldn't feel great if they were sitting at five, six, seven, where they probably should have been slotted given uh, their record this season. So I think it'll be fun for Blazer fans tomorrow uh, to kind of enjoy that process. I know that um, you know you'd rather have your team winning uh, games and throwing a parade. Like Denver's not sitting around today. The fans in Denver are not sitting around today, going, "Hey, can't wait for the draft." Can't wait to see who we get in the draft because no, they're just still they're probably still on a high celebrating. Like I hope that happens. Like Blazer fans have waited too long. Like if you are somebody that was born in like August, September of nineteen seventy seven, you know, they haven't won in your lifetime. They they haven't won a title. It's ridiculous. And and don't give me the Timbers and the Thorns championships. I always get the Timbers fans of the Thorns saying, "Well, what about what about us?" I'm talking about the NBA championship, like you know those the Timbers and the Thorns championships are nice. Those are nice things that happened. Okay, for soccer fans, go bananas. But when you know the Timbers and Thorns throw a parade, I'm all about it. Right, have them on the show, bring the coaches on the show. We you know we'll throw a party. But I'm far more interested in a national championship in college football in this state or a national championship in women's or men's basketball in this state, or a Blazers championship in this state, than I am in seeing another soccer championship. And I know I mean no disrespect to soccer. I just mean we've seen it, okay? Well, we haven't seen in your lifetime, if you were born in you know, August or September of 1977, is the Blazers win a championship. And so I'm going to throw this question to you, Stephen, and I want to pit it to our audience. If you could see... An NBA championship in Portland in your lifetime or your college team winning a national championship in football or men's basketball or women's basketball, tell me what what you want to see. What is that thing that you want to see? Because Bill Shonley said it all the time when he came on the show. He said, I'd love to see another one in my lifetime, John. Rip City. He used to say that. Didn't happen. What about your lifetime? 503-417-7575. Steven, is it a Blazers title? Is it an Oregon football championship, an Oregon State football championship? Is it a national title for Dana Altman and the Duck Men, Kelly Graves and the, and the women at Oregon? Who, who's that mythical championship you'd love to see happen? Uh, for me, it's the Trailblazers right now for sure. Um, but I think go, getting older, it may change depending on where my kids go to school. I think if my kids either, you know, not saying they're going to play college sports or whatever, if they play college sports, I think that would be the obvious choice for me. But even if they attended a school, like if they went to Oregon State, I think Oregon mm-hmm. State, I think that would change my mind to go to that school. But right now, uh, it's definitely the Blazers because that's kind of where me and my kids and my family, my dad, my brother, we all kind of have the relationship together. So I think right now, Trailblazers for me. Trailblazers for you. Oh, man, I, I feel like we got robbed of seeing Sabrina Ionescu win a national championship at Oregon, so that one kind of popped into my head for just a second. But I think college football moves the needle. Oregon or Oregon State, getting to the playoff, winning a national championship would be phenomenal. But the thing that would galvanize the state would be the Blazers. It's it's the it's the thing. Like, I think there's some Oregon State fans that wouldn't be happy if Oregon won a title or some – there's some Duck fans that wouldn't be happy if Oregon State won a title. There certainly aren't in ba- baseball and other sports. The 5 at 5 is coming up. Anna's going to pop in the studio. Buckle up. I don't know what it is about that submarine going down to see the Titanic. I uh, keep thinking about it. keeps crossing my mind. I keep hoping for a miracle. Latest report uh, coming out is that they uh, have detected some 
indiscernible banging sounds coming from the search area. They don't know what it is. Down to hours of potential oxygen left. Uh, it, it feels like a Black Mirror episode to me. Steven and I see it the same way. Anna's popped into the studio. Anna, I got to tell you, like, it was one of the first things I told you this morning. I was thinking about those, those people in the sub, if they're still out there somewhere. Terrible way to go. That's why I don't go in the ocean like that. You know, I'll wade in. I'll swim a little. I can't. Uh, more than about eight feet of water, no thanks. I'm not doing that. How about you? You're a, you're, you're a snorkeler. Yeah, been... I'm not opposed to the idea of snorkeling, and I've, you know, loosely been intrigued by scuba diving. Um, I don't think I had... I don't Does this change your mind on any of that? <laughs> no, not necessarily. I mean, I feel for the people that are in that sub, that would be a terrible predicament to be in. I don't quite share your fascination with it or the rest of the world's, and I don't... I don't know why. Maybe it's because I just don't, I don't know. I don't want to import tragedy into my psyche. And I, it, it, it actually stresses me out to think about that situation. So you just don't want to think about it. Just... So I'm making the choice. Like I, I'll be honest with you. I haven't read a single article about oh, it. Man. Everything that I know about that sub is just through osmosis from you talking about it. Well, I can tell you this, um, Coast Guard is saying that they have uh they're looking and trying to figure out the origin of the the tapping sounds that they're hearing. Uh I'm hopeful that it's somebody out there who's banging on the side of that sub and maybe they're not somewhere that they can't be reached. You know? Like I'm I'm thinking like the uh, rescuers. You're like I would not want you searching for me if I was in the sub cuz you don't want to think about it. You know? You know, I don't want to <laughs> think about that person is down there. I actually want someone who's who's going people. Who's going, I need to find these people. You know how like a surgeon, right before a, like a surgery, uh, you know, we've talked to, we, uh, in fact, we talked to a neurosurgeon uh-huh. who told me this. We have a neighbor who's a neurosurgeon, brilliant mind, okay? Yes. We've had him over our house a couple times, and I will corner that guy, <laughs> and I'll pepper him with questions. And I asked him one time, you know, do you want when you're going into surgery to know the story of the person that you're operating on yeah and he said i don't that doesn't help me that emotion doesn't help me perform as a surgeon Mm -hmm. but as a search and rescue person i have to think if they have a face they know a story you know they know there's a 19 year old kid who's on the sub there's a billionaire on the sub you know i want to know like the cast of gilligan's island if I'm searching for the cast of Gilligan's Island, because now I've got some emotion attached to it. I want to find these people, damn but it. Maybe, maybe it's a similar thing, though, for the searchers. Maybe they need to detach from the emotion of the situation no. so that they can focus on the process so. I'm with Anna on of searching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm with Anna because, like, totally disagree. because if they fail the mission, then they're going to be even more hurt, and they're not going to want to do it the next time. I failed the mission. There's no failing once you put a face on it. Yeah, but if you factor in that emotion, that's it adrenaline in a situation like that where adrenaline isn't actually going to help you. I'm going to find them. <laughs> I'm motivated to find them. Um, I'm hoping they're out there somewhere. Maybe they came to the surface and they're, they just, they're floating out there somewhere. But the problem is you can't open this damn thing from the inside. There's no ability to the, – the bolts are on the outside of the door. I just, I can't. 
I'm already like that. That statement alone is anxiety inducing for me. I can't even speak to that. Nightmare fuel. This whole thing. How is this such an expensive thing? And they don't have like an emergency button or something that like one person knows about. There needs to be. Like the Here's ejecta. the thing I was yeah. thinking about. Shouldn't everyone all, know about it? I'm, I'm like having, on a plane? Well, I don't know, because if you have like someone in there that just wants to press a button to see what happens, you're down low. You can't do that. I'm having all kinds of morbid thoughts about this thing. It, among them, I thought, okay, there's enough oxygen on this thing for five people to survive, you know, 96 hours. That was the first, you know, thing. And mm-hmm. I said, well, what if... The guy who is the uh, owner of the company or the guy who's operating the machine is aware of that. Do they all turn on each other like five hours into this thing knowing that, you know what I mean? Like it's a Black Mirror episode. There's nightmare fuel involved in this thing. Now, I hope they find him because, you know, I I think about last night right before I went to sleep. I was thinking about this morning when I woke up and you know how much I don't like the ocean. You've yeah. seen me in oh. a snorkeling situation. I know. I don't belong out there. But you have you have good reason. Like you have deeply emotional reasons for yeah. that as well. Well, I had friends who drown. Yeah. So and also I have common sense. And I look at how deep and big and wide the ocean is and I know we haven't explored it all. And I'm like, we don't know what's out there and we're still jumping in this thing? Like that does not make sense. I had a friend who messaged me when we were talking about this earlier, and he said, I don't go in their place, they don't go in my place. No sharks, no whales on land, me not in their ocean. Uh, Stephen feels the same way. I kind of, I agree with that. Like, I'll, we go to Hawaii or somewhere, I'll get in the water, you know? I'll jump some waves. Maybe I'll go on a boat, you know, or something. But I'm not, I'm not out there. Like, you know, we were in, where was, where was that? We were in Belize where they have all that great scuba diving. Yeah. And all these people were scuba diving. And I was like, no thanks. Reef. And they have that. The reef there on uh, Ambergris Key is a shelf that falls off significantly <laughs> in a scary way. Yeah. Like it, Stephen, it's like 10 to 15 feet deep water for about three quarters of a mile as you leave the shore. Okay. I know this because I happen to be on a kayak terrified out of my mind the whole way and at one moment at three quarters of the way there's these buoys you can tie up to and i'm like oh this is a cool place to tie up this is about as far away from the shore that i want to be it's still not that deep i could still see the bottom you know in the water but you know i'm not seeing anything scary but this is about as far as i want to be and then i got out of the kayak with a snorkel mask on and some fins against my better judgment and i started kind of swimming around the buoy i was tied to and I realized that the reef dropped into black, nothing, <laughs> right by where I was. I was on the edge of the reef. That's where this buoy was tied up. And on the dark side of the reef, where there was nothing, there were large sea animals that were moving around, too big for my comfort. On the shallow side, it was cute and shells and coral and pl- pretty fish that you would see in tropical tanks. I was freaked out of my mind. I could barely breathe, and I needed to get back in the kayak and get closer to shore because it was not where I belonged. And I said to Anna, I don't belong out here. Giant manta rays coming along, giant sea turtles. And I'm like, what are they running from? 
<laughs> because something's chasing them. Well, I don't belong out here. And they, they can yeah. sense it. Those animals in the water, they can sense your fear, I feel like. like oh, they, totally. they know. They know that you and me are scared out there, John. They're coming right at us to scare us. It was right after that guy, that Steve Irwin guy, got shanked by the uh, by the by the, uh, see, the manta ray or whatever. Was shanked him. Stingray. <laughs> that stingray got him. It was right <laughs> after that. And so we're in the water, and I'm kind of trying to breathe. I'm hyperventilating as I'm, like, kind of snorkeling around for a few minutes. And I look up, and I see giant manta ray, wingspan of a 747. <laughs> coming towards me it is a mama and a baby and I, I don't know if they could sense my fear Stephen, but they might have just seen my fear as i took both hands and i covered my chest cavity saying don't stab me don't stab me in the chest stab me anywhere please at that moment i'm just thinking i'm dead like i'm die. i'm gonna die this is my last moments in the world in the world oh. what are we gonna do I was horrified. Then they went along their way, and I went. Anna was like, "Oh, this is wonderful," and I'm like, "No, we need to go." And then the next thing I saw was this giant, dark mass approaching from the distance, and I went, "Oh God, what is this thing?" And it came up. It was a giant sea turtle, the biggest sea turtle I've ever seen, and the sea turtle came swimming up, got so close to me that. It blinked, and I could see its eyelid. That's like that's how close this giant sea turtle was. Then it turned, and I thought for my whole life until that point that sea turtles were peaceful and slow moving in the water. The sea turtle turned and went and just took off like, like a, a torpedo. Like a torpedo. It really did. I couldn't. It, I'd never seen anything move that fast. And I was like, okay. Now I looked around and I went, what is it running from? Because whatever it's running from, I don't want to see right now. Then, so I climbed back in the kayak and I paddled to the shore. It's quite the excursion. Yep, it was. I want to take a couple phone calls. Chad's in Iowa. Wants to talk about this missing Go. sub. Go ahead, Chad. Yeah. Hey, Joe. Chad dropped the phone. He held so long. Oh boy. Dropped the phone. Mark's in Beaverton. Mark, you want to talk about the sub, or what do you want to talk about? No, I wanted to answer your question about. Um, you know, what what championship would I like to see in my yeah. lifetime? Yes. So I figure I'm 63, and I've been blessed with all of my favorite teams have won a championship. I mean, including the 2018 Beavers College World Series. I would love, and I would severely help the economy out because I would probably lose my shirt in buying gear if OSU won the um Football championship, college football, football playoff. championship. Yep. Even if they got there, even if they be got a hell there, of a story. You know, no, don't don't fall short. The, you might as well win it if you're going to go. Well, exactly. Well, that's the whole thing. Yep. Do that. Love that. All right. I need to talk about something other than the submarine. Oh, have you been discussing that for no. the last two hours no. ad nauseum? No, no, no. Just okay. for a little bit. Okay. All right. Let's do the five at five. <laughs> five biggest stories in Anna's view. The five. Story number one, as Anna sees it, not the submarine, but what is it? ESPN restructuring, reportedly canceling its national morning radio show featuring Max Kellerman, Keyshawn Johnson, and Jay Williams, is according to the New York Post. The network is also expected to undergo a significant set of on-air layoffs in the weeks to come. 
So this is all due to some cuts with the aim of saving some jobs, behind-the-scenes jobs, yeah. and hitting the financial goals set by Disney. Do you think ESPN is regretting that partnership? Or do you think it no. has benefited enough? No, but that? what you're seeing is they're splintering these entities apart. They're wanting they're, they're wanting them to be self-sufficient. This is like the university and the athletic department going, hey, you, you do your thing, we're going to do our thing, but we don't want stockholders mixed up here. You know, ESPN has been doing, uh, you know, a lot of restructuring, rolling layoffs. It's been several months. I don't think this was surprising, and especially in Max Kellerman's case. Um, you know, he has, you know, sort of ran his course when he was part of First Take. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, it basically you got, you know, you've got a couple of few personalities here who had deals that were all coming up in the next three or four months. And I think um, I think that, you know, ESPN Radio is it is trying to do the best that it can do. But, you know, it's part of the restructuring. And, and you know, they've obviously cut jobs with broadcasters and a lot of behind the scenes people. I don't think the radio entity was going to be immune from that. Number two story, as you see it, Anna, go ahead. Tyreek Tyreek Hill under police investigation. The NFL stars accused of getting physical with someone uh, in Miami over the weekend. Uh, This is reportedly an investigation involving assault and battery with the Dolphins player uh, at fault here. This was a fishing boat altercation, wasn't it? Yeah, at a a marina. Uh, He got into a dispute reportedly with an employee of a charter company Mm. at a, a boating spot. He's been on boats a lot in recent uh, days. I guess on Father's Day, he was out on the water. Uh, He's been doing a lot of deep-sea fishing. Uh, But so far, no comment from Tyreek Hill's camp uh, regarding this latest. Apparently, this was a fishing charter, and Hill and his group did not have permission or they didn't have an agreement to be on the boat. They boarded the boat. They were ordered to get off the boat, and as the guy was trying to get him off the boat, he slapped the guy. So uh, Tyreek Hill, not a good look there, regardless. Number three story, as you see it. Uh, This is a Los Angeles Angels minor league player. Joe Adele hits the longest home run ever tracked by StatCast. Now, for anybody that's keeping track, this is the system that uh, has been used in the majors since 2015 and certain minor league levels since last year. He hit a game-tying three-run homer in the eighth inning that went 514 feet. So that's the longest homer this season, and it's also longer than any homer tracked by StatCast. How about that? It's cool, but it doesn't – I think StatCast has only been doing baseball home runs uh, altogether since 2006. So I think there are a lot of other home runs that – people have seen hit like old baseball writers will swear like ted williams hit a ball 500 feet babe ruth hit one 575 i don't know how much we can believe that but i think we need a bigger sample size like daryl strawberry dave kingman uh willie stargell i mean willie stargell hit a ball that hit a seat in the upper deck 535 feet away from home plate in pittsburgh like i think it's hard to to dispute that that ball didn't travel 535 feet because it hit the damn seat. They could measure it. But I like StatCast, but this is this is akin to, like, you know, calling something the world record 
but saying since 2006. <laughs> Asterisk. Yeah. World record since 2006. All right. The number three story as you see it. Uh, a Florida guy with no basketball experience is eligible for the NBA draft. Okay. So this is a recent University of Florida graduate. Never played basketball in high school at the college level. Jordan Haber is a 21-year-old TikTok content creator who mostly creates Star Wars and anime content. He posted a video in late May in which he revealed that he had successfully discovered and utilized a loophole which made him available to be drafted into the NBA. You still need someone to pick him. Though, he emailed you know? the NBA to inform the league that he met the criteria to become draft eligible, filled out the required paperwork, and eventually received confirmation from the league that he is eligible for the draft. I love this. It's a good story. Really good story. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to pick him, but I'd love to see him in the green room, like anxiously awaiting, you know, like just sweating. <laughs> if you're like Saturday Night Live, do you not like mic that guy up and put him in there? You know? <laughs> I love that he figured this out because out of boredom, he was looking through the NBA's collective bargaining agreement and then stumbled upon this loophole on page 273. This is like uh, in uh, 2000. I think it was 2002, whenever the Salt Lake Olympics were. Yeah. Uh, the There was a uh, couple of guys in uh, Central California who were uh, American, born in U.S. soil, but they were of Armenian descent. And they des they determined that the country of Armenia did not have a bobsled team. And so they applied for dual citizenship in Armenia under the guise of competing for Armenia in the bobsled. The trouble was they had no experience in the bobsled. They'd never done it before applying for citizenship. And so all they needed was a qualifying time in the bobsled. So they spent all their time just trying to get a qualifying time for the Olympics, and they eventually got it. And so they barely qualified, were able to go to the Olympics, walk in the opening ceremonies, represent Armenia, but they never... Uh, they were, like, dead last in the bobsled team. It was like the Jamaican bobsled team, more or less. To be clear, he's not expecting to be drafted. Right. But he is officially on the list of 300. There you go. It's hoping to have their name called as one of 58. Yeah, think about that. 58 players drafted, 300 people draft eligible. I didn't know that that was the uh, yeah. proportion. That's going to be a lot of people leaving for home without a date. Yeah. Number four. Uh, Victor Wembenyama uh, will get drafted Thursday night. Number one. But given that the draft is in New York City, um, he showed up at the Yankees game last night. Oh, gosh. Night did you see this? threw out the first pitch. Steven, did you see him throw the first pitch out? I did, but I, can I defend him? You can try. You can, as I explain uh, that. Yeah, and I explained what's going on, and I, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll state my case. Like. It's it's clear what happened here because he didn't actually post any video of his first pitch, and neither did the Yankees. Everyone posted just a still photo. So okay. go on, go yeah, on. No, you he threw it and he threw it up the, <laughs> by the catcher, just a wee bit outside. Did you see the picture of him holding a baseball though? Yeah, his hands are too big. His hands are too. I, can you imagine? I can't imagine throwing a bouncy ball from the pitcher's <laughs> mound to home plate and having to be accurate. That's what he's doing. Well, uh, that's an excuse. Randy Johnson was 6'7". He had large hands, too. He threw some strikes. 
Come on. He's not 7'3"? I'm not going to give him a pass here. Most kids on the playground could make that pitch by about fifth grade. I say drop him to number three on the big board. Let him come to play. Yeah. Uh, let's see Scoot Henderson throw a pitch, and then we'll see who goes number one overall. Um, I, I think a couple things. Um, I don't like – I didn't like his motion. I didn't like his mechanics throwing a baseball. He looked ill-prepared. He didn't look like a guy who had warmed up at all. He did not look warm. And uh, he wasn't quite embarrassed enough. He was a little bit embarrassed, but I think that pitch deserved a little bit more embarrassment. And take this, take it from somebody who's also thrown a pitch off the backstop at a first pitch. Well, maybe he's just got a little chip on his shoulder right now. Because, mm-hmm. like, on Good Morning America, Robin Roberts was asking him about the concerns about him handling the, you know, grueling NBA schedule. His response was, they can think that because they don't know my work ethic. And then she says, when someone says bulk up, he said, why? For what? You should tell others to skinny up. Mm. Let's see it. Skinny up. Interesting retorts from him. I like it. Mm-hmm. I like that he's got a little uh, got a little fire to him. Finally, the fifth story you see is the biggest story in sports today. I thought that was number five. Oh, was it? I don't know. Was that five? Was that five, Steven? I thought it was Are five. Are you counting? Is anyone counting? Okay, finally. I wasn't really counting, but I thought it was That's five. five. I think that, I mean, okay. I've got another one about Penny Hardaway. He's I got that one. No, I, already, I already had Penny. Penny All would right. be six. Uh, All right. Since we haven't talked about the sub in five comments. Here we go. Ty in Portland's called in with a comment on the sub. Ty, what do you got? Hey, John, how are you doing? Hey, man. I know these guys have got high IQ and stuff, but something's got to be said for uh Street smarts. I mean, when I, I kind of looked this thing up and kind of see what the inside was and the yeah. uh, the navigator, the uh, guy who was uh, steering the ship there. Uh, I mean, he, there's a game box controller. I mean, if I'm paying $250,000, I want to have a little bit more security knowing that, it, you know, I'm going down 13,000 feet and there's the game controller. You know, I want to be for sure that, the you know, the steering cap. You know, capabilities are, are going to be more than just a game controller. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. I didn't like it. I don't like any of it. Uh, I don't like being closing yourself into that little tube. Um, nope. Go watch the movie Titanic. James Cameron made a whole movie about it. Why do you think the Titanic captures people so much? Like the movie, obviously, huge blockbuster hit. The anything any news on the Titanic, you know, people are interested in it. Why? What is it about the Titanic that captures people's attention to begin with? Um, I mean, as evidenced by the current situation faced by the people in the submarine, it's it's unreachability at the bottom of the ocean. So it's one of those aspects of Earth and our modern existence where it's a true mystery. I mean, it's why, you know, the recent revelations of the scientists who've been able to um, put cameras around it and really develop uh, a, a more accurate 3D image of the wreckage at the bottom of the ocean, showing how it's in two parts and showing the portions of the ship that are still intact, like, that's all very fascinating to us because it's not like we can just go to a museum and see it. I think it's, you know... It's out of reach. The five people who are on board this submersible include uh, Hamish Harding, the chairman of Action Aviation. He is a billionaire. Um, He is uh, paid $250,000 to go on this expedition. Uh, Also, um, I'm going to mess the names up, but Suleiman Dawood, 
who uh, is uh, is uh, 18, 19 years old. Uh, he is with his father, Shazada Dawood, who is the vice chairman of an investment and holding company in Pakistan, um, heir to one of the largest family fortunes in Pakistan. So father, son uh, are on there. Um, he, uh, Paul Henry Nargala, the Titanic's greatest explorer. He is the expert on the Titanic. He's led six expeditions to the wreckage site. He is uh, he is on this uh, this uh, craft. Stockton Rush, the CEO of OceanGate, is OceanGate is the uh, company is running the expedition. He's the pilot. He is also a um, aerospace engineering graduate from Princeton. Has an MBA from Berkeley. Founded this company. He is in there. Does it make it any better that the CEO? I mean, I actually think it is a little better that the CEO is is part of the crew. Because, like, you know, when you see these things where the CEO gives a statement afterwards and says, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with the family, and you go, yeah, but your family's not on there. Mm-hmm. He's actually the pilot. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm glad they're all missing. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, does it make it a little better that one of the seats is taken by the guy who is the CEO? <sighs> I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I feel for the 19-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, he and that family. Just making a memory. He's just going with his dad. With his dad. Yeah. You know, everybody else, uh, you know, the Titanic guy was, you know, he'd been down there a bunch of times, you know. Uh, billionaire. Go spend your money somewhere else. What's he doing? These people. I hope they find him. <laughs> I hope they find him. I hope they find him because I would like to see, like, that moment where they come out of the hatch. <laughs> you where... vacillate between judgment I know. and deep empathy. <laughs> I have deep empathy <laughs> for him. In one breath. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm going, what are you doing? <laughs> I... I don't even want to. I don't want to bungee jump. Okay, I don't want to skydive. What are you doing, getting into a submersible and going twelve thousand five hundred feet below sea level? Have you thought of what the living conditions are in there with the bathroom situation? It's got to be awful. I got you. You say that you want to see what it looks like inside. I don't want to see what it looks like inside. That's got to be. Well, when they come out of this thing, when they find them about fifteen minutes from now, and they pop the hinge on it. Um, you know, we're all going to have a good laugh about it. But I, I think there's a lot of people making laugh. jokes about it. Are you laughing? Who's oh, I have a good laughing? laugh about, like, them getting away and they survived it. And, you okay. know, okay, exhale. Okay. Okay, I'm not saying we're laughing. Okay. We're, but the reality is, you know, probably far worse. Can we say that? Yeah. I, I read something last night. This is what haunted me. I can't okay? breathe this right is now, what haunted so me. I, can't, I can barely talk. The, the piece that I read said, it said, <sighs> on the bright side, if... If it did implode, uh, it would have been over in milliseconds. Yeah. And I was like, that's the bright side? It would have to be, rather than prolonged torture. We're going to talk anything but the submersible next. Thank you. Leave it here. I got to give a shout out to uh, Rick McCutcheon and the team at The Wall. You've heard me uh, talk about The Wall, bythewall.com, if you want to check out their work uh, for years on the show. And. Uh, Rick uh, and his team, strong supporters of the BFT Foundation. They every year they they uh, come up and support the uh, nonprofit organization. But we had this um, area that was off to the side of the driveway. I know this isn't sports talk, but I want to say this: like they had this area that was kind of this undefined, uh, you know, uh, zone of weeds and bushes and stuff. And I was like, you know, I always wanted. I I kind of tried to build a planter box myself like a year ago, and then. Finally, I had Rick over the house, and I said, hey, could you guys do a planter box right there? 
And Rick just kind of eyeballed it, and he said, "Yeah, we could do a great planter box, and we could do this. We could put, you know, we could put, uh, you know, stones in there and build, you know, build it up." And 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 lo and behold, they came out on Monday, and worked like crazy, and finished it this morning early. And I went out and looked at it this morning. I was like, it's "Phenomenal!" And then I found out that Rick's son was part of the crew, like, and didn't say anything. So the owner's got his kid working for him, and uh, just kindly. Flying under the radar, I said, "Why don't you say something?" That you're Rick's kid. And he said, "I want to do that." But uh, I got to give a shout out to the Wall. They are uh, obviously advertisers, sponsors of this radio show that you're listening to. They have been for years, and Rick and the team do great work. If you're looking for a driveway or a outdoor patio, backyard space, retaining wall, uh, walkway, uh, planter box, uh, they can do it for you. They've done uh, a bunch of jobs for us and. Making our yard better one step at a time. So thank you to Rick and the team at the Wall by the Wall dot com if you're interested in in uh, getting uh, seeing their projects. Um, you know it's interesting that you know we had people call in talking about wanting to see their teams win championships. We think about this this sports thing in um, you know in context of today's world. I can remember growing up and seeing my players largely stay with their teams. I've been really curious to watch, I think, with college football to see, and basketball too, to see how, you know, teams and players kind of jumping around and getting in the portal, getting out of the portal, how that would affect maybe the way people root. I find that in college, you know, the the fans are obviously rooting for their programs, but there's not, there's not as much loyalty to the players who leave the programs as there is in professional sports. I see players who leave teams in professional sports, and fans seem to say or appear to say, hey, I like that player who is with my team. I'll still root for him. I hear that. And I hear that with some Blazer fans right now about Damian Lillard. Hey, he's my guy. He's been loyal. I'll root for him if he leaves. Steven, do you think there's a difference when it comes to college and pro athletes and the way that you know, like fans kind of track that? Because when players leave college programs, the fan base turns on said player and says, we don't want you anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think maybe it has to do with a lot of times these college fans are alumni of the school. And so you know they have that you know, emotional tie, emotional bond with the team. Because I do think in professional sports, when a player has that emotional tie, and fans really feel bought in with him, that there is some hatred. I mean, I remember LaMarcus Aldridge leaving. Nobody's really happy about that. My dad still says if LaMarcus Aldridge ever made a comeback, he would go to the Blazer game and boo him. Like, that's how much he doesn't like him. And so I think there is, I think, I think it's a little different in the fact that, you know, the college athletes are still kids and that we probably shouldn't hold them to a higher standard. But I think a lot of times we do just because, you know, these you know people that went to those schools, they paid money to go to that school. They love that school. They have that love, emotional tie to it. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a little different, but I think it's also the same at the same time. Like these professional athletes, man, if they play there at one spot for a long time and they do something well and then they leave for uh, and you don't get anything back, I think people do end up not liking them. Yeah, and, I, and I guess there are cases like, you know, I don't think Seattle Mariners fans cared for you know, can you know they cared a lot for Ken Griffey Jr. They cared a lot for you know a guy like Edgar Martinez or Jay Buhner of that era, but A. Rod, 
left them, and he left, and he went to the Texas Rangers, and it was about money. It was about two hundred fifty-two million dollars, and going to you know chasing the money, and fans didn't like that. Well, and, isn't that the isn't that the thing where if they leave on their own, that's when fans don't like them. Where in college, they're leaving on their own to go to a different school. And the pros, if they're a free agent and leave, that's when you get mad. But if in Dame's case, if the Blazers were to trade him, I think fans understand that because it wasn't necessarily, you know, quote-unquote, his decision. Yeah, and I guess that I, I'm wrestling with it because I, I think it takes time in pro sports for fans to kind of get to the place where they accept that it is a business and, hey, this was a business decision and I think if you can logically make sense of the fact, like, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. at some point had to go and go play for the Cincinnati Reds. And, you know, he had to go play somewhere else. It had run its course, whatnot. Uh, but I think if you are a a college fan, it it happens so fast. Like, a player is a freshman, and then he's in the portal as a sophomore. He's just, Or he stays two years, and he's gone. And, you know, I'm looking at cases like, you know, in the Pac-12 even, at Oregon even, at Oregon State, where you're going to see players that – will pop up at other Pac-12 schools in different uniforms, and it looks funny. And you look at it and you go, okay, like I, I'm used to seeing that guy in an Oregon uniform, and now he's in an Arizona uniform. That doesn't look right to me. But I think in the end there's a lower tolerance for it because you're an Oregon fan. You're an Oregon State fan. And I think sometimes Blazer fans can say, hey, I'm a Blazer fan, but I also like LeBron. I also like, like, in, in college football, we don't do that as much. Maybe because the players are gone before you really get to form those rooting alliances and those rooting interests. Well, how are Duck fans going to feel in week two when they play Texas Tech and Tyler Shuck? They're going to be okay with it because they see Tyler Shuck as a guy who wasn't part of their team, wasn't part of their future, and he wasn't that good anyway. But I, I look at it more of a, in a case where, like, I think we're going to start to see high-profile athletes like a guy like Barry Alexander at Georgia. He's at Georgia. He gets in the portal. He commands seven-figure offers, NIL offers. He ends up at USC as a defensive lineman. When that guy gets on the field, if USC happens to meet Georgia in the national title game, the Georgia fans are not going to be happy with Bear Alexander. Like they're going to look and say, that guy, he's a traitor. He betrayed us. He didn't need to leave. But he was just doing for you know, doing what was best for himself. Like is Oregon, are Oregon State fans going to root for Omar Spates at LSU this year? He, he left Oregon State after having Probably a really not. good year. Yeah, he Probably would, not. Got some money. That was a big loss. All right, leave it here. Some parting thoughts coming up. you got the BFT. Well, NBA draft uh, just uh, 24 hours away. Got me thinking about something. I was thinking about you know how sometimes the draft gets you a player that you never saw coming. And it gets you a player that becomes maybe your favorite player of all time. Or maybe just a player you like to root for. On that note, I would like to know, who is your favorite athlete of all time? Regardless of sport, regardless of region, regardless of time period, what athlete is your favorite athlete to watch? Not your team, your favorite athlete you ever watched. Who was it? If you're a diehard Blazer fan, I don't blame you. If you go back and you go, well, I was a Blazer fan, and I just love the Rasheed Wallace era of the Portland Trail Blazers. That guy was a true star player, or Cliff Robinson. Maybe you were a, a fan of Cliffy, Uncle Cliffy. Maybe Maurice Lucas, um, you know, Lionel Hollins. Maybe Kevin Duckworth. Maybe LaMarcus Aldridge. Maybe outside of the sport of basketball, you're looking to baseball, and you're like, you know, no, no, no. I was a Ken Griffey Jr. fan, or I was, you know, fill in the blank. Who was your player 
regardless of sport, regardless of era, the player that popped into your head as I said that, 503-417-7575 is the number. I'm going to start because I grew up in the Bay Area. Of course I grew up watching the San Francisco 49ers. Of course the Niners of that era, they were dominated by Joe Montana, and Joe Montana's fantastic, but he wasn't my favorite player on that 49ers team in that era. My favorite player was number 42, Ronnie Lott. I love the way Ronnie Lott played the game. Outside of maybe Kenny Easley, Ronnie Lott was easily the hardest-hitting safety in the NFL at the time. He played with passion. He played every game. He played hurt. In fact, one game, uh, legend has it that his, you know, his pinky finger got dislocated to the point where he had to make a decision, and he said, amputate it. Yes, they cut off part of his pinky finger so he could continue playing the game. Just cut me, Mick. I'm not saying I need that from my star players, but he's the guy I just love to watch play. I love the way he flew around on the field. Yes, I know, he went to USC. We won't hold that against him. But Ronnie Lott, that was my guy. On the baseball side of things, I had a few players because I loved the game of baseball. I loved watching baseball. I loved watching Tony Gwynn hit. Just loved watching that guy work his way into a you know single to right center field or you know hit the ball the other way, left center. Daryl Strawberry had a swing that was so pretty, the bat looked like a toothpick in his hand. Uh, Will Clark was my guy on the Giants. So was Jack Clark. I like those Clark guys at first base for the Giants. Those were players that I really enjoyed seeing play. In the college game, look, I could go back and I could tell you, like, you know, it was John Elway at Stanford or, you know, but I loved watching Charles White run the football for USC uh, late 1970s. Who was your guy? 503-417-7575. Stephen, who came to mind? Favorite player you ever watched or rooted for or whatnot? Uh, for me, basketball-wise, it was always Hakeem Olajuwon. I loved watching Hakeem play and then going back and watching like him play at Houston for five slam and jamma, just how awesome he was and aggressive he was. And then as he got older, the way he figured out – you know, he can post people up and use those post moves, and then he taught people afterwards. You know, even today, uh, guys today, you know, like go to Hakeem to learn post moves. You know, I think he's uh, he's just one of the best players I've ever seen. Smooth. Yeah, he's just awesome. So I, I love feet. love Hakeem. Um, Baseball-wise, it's always the unique guys for me. Like, I always liked watching Tim Lincecum pitch uh, for the Giants just because he had the crazy wind-up, just so little, and he just threw with, you know, all his, all his little heart that he had. I uh, loved him. Loved Mo Vaughn back in the day just because uh, I played for mm-hmm. the Red Sox when I was a kid. And, of course, yeah. Vaughn and Vaughn. So um, those are a couple of guys that came to my mind. I love that. Let's go to the phone lines. 503-417-7575 is the number. Phil is in Portland. Phil, who is your favorite to watch? What up, John? Um, so it's funny. You, you said it, and then you said his name as soon as you asked the question. Rasheed Wallace. I'm, I'm born in 85, so Rasheed was, like, right in my – middle school, high school era of watching yeah. basketball. And I used to get so mad at you because you were so mean to the Blazers at that time. <laughs> I was like, who is this John Cazano guy? Like, who is this cat? Like, why is he dogging on all my guys right now? I love that. Uh, I love that you hated me. Look, uh, I I actually liked Sheed. I appreciated him. I think I understood him. And I just I felt like he could have owned the city, Phil. Like he like he wasn't interested in owning the city, but he could have owned the city if he wanted to. No, you're right. I mean, I'm 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 like I said, my friends were all were all you know we're in our mid 30s, late 30s, and they're from Philly, so like they're they're big Rasheed Wallace cats, and it's like he did for us. He owned the city. You know what I mean? He was the coolest yeah. guy. 
he was into hip hop. Like he had a yep. he had kind of a beef with E Forty back in the day. E Forty made a whole song about Rasheed Wallace, so <laughs> it's just funny. I love that. I uh, appreciate that. Phil in Portland. Uh, Sheet and I, we had a love hate relationship. Um, I I actually for a while was one of the only media members, if maybe maybe the only media member who was regularly in that locker room at that time, who he would talk to. And then he turned on me when I started asking him, did he want to be traded and whatnot, and eventually the relationship deteriorated. But I felt like Rasheed Wallace could have owned Portland. Like if he wanted to, because he had it. He had the personality, he liked music. He, you know, he was, in, in a lot of ways, teammates would describe him as the, as the most intelligent, best basketball IQ, nicest, most generous person, unselfish to a fault, but it's not what the perception of him was from the outside. And part of it, I think, was because Rashid didn't trust easily. And, you know, in, in really when you look at his upbringing, he was raised essentially by a single mother. He had a father figure in his life who passed away when he was at North Carolina. Well-documented story. And I think he just had a really difficult time trusting, especially trusting media, especially trusting people that weren't people of color. And I think it was hard for him to come into Portland and be in that locker room and have a, a lot of reporters that look like me who were trying to talk with him. It was hard for him, I think, to build trust and build rapport. And some of that's on the media. It is. Some of that, as I look back as an older media member now, I go, you know, maybe I should have been more lenient, I guess, or more understanding of that position because it took me a while in talking to a lot of people who knew him to kind of understand and recognize, like, you know, part of the problem with Rashid in Portland was that, you know, Rashid was looking and going, who can I trust here? Wiley's in Eugene. Wiley, who did you vote for? Hey, man, good to talk to you. I'm going to say Tiger Woods. Yeah. And I know that might be a little cliche, but, no. you know, and later in his life or his career, it wasn't so great, but his early years, 2019 Masters, I just, it was uh, definitely a, just an idol for me. Yeah. So. I, I just, I remember the public, the public had a hard time with Tiger because everybody, I think, loved Tiger initially because he thrust onto the scene. Young, dynamic, didn't look like other golfers. You know, everybody talked about this is, he's going to make golf more diverse. Certainly brought new sponsors into golf. But I think, you know, we looked around years later and we said, okay, golf didn't get necessarily more diverse. It, you know, it, it just was Tiger bringing money and attention and dollars and peripheral sports fans to a sport that hadn't had them. And it was interesting to kind of watch him on the arc of his story. Like you could make it into a three-act story. He was Tiger, he was dynamic and he was terrific. And then it was Tiger struggling with personal issues. And a lot of his personal life thrust into the limelight. Suddenly he's on ESPN having to apologize for transgressions in his personal life because he's a public figure. And then injury to his back. And then ultimately the car accident that, you know, we have now seen, you know, render him, uh, you know, a shadow of what he was in his former self. But I find now that you appreciate the early, the act one of Tiger Woods' career. And you certainly, I think he has more people rooting for him in Act 3 than he did in Act 2 because what a story it would be.
to see Tiger Woods someday regain enough health that you know he doesn't look like he's hobbling along the course trying to just finish around and instead looking like a guy who could compete again and maybe win another major someday. Um, I don't know. I I found the relationship that Tiger Woods had with the public very complicated, and especially when he was having those issues in his personal life because people didn't like it. And I have a friend who is a like my agent is a diehard Tiger Woods fan. Loves Tiger Woods. Loves the focus, the dominance, the greatness that he represents, just like the caller. And I remember having debates with him in the middle of, you know, Tiger struggling with personal issues, going, hey, how can you root for the guy? How can you feel good about rooting for that guy? And in the end, I, I think a lot of people are trying to separate Tiger the competitor with the Tiger the person. Tomorrow, NBA draft. We got you covered right here on this show. Want you there wall for wall, wall to wall. As we dive deep on the NBA draft, you'll hear it right here on the station you're listening to. So lock it in. Uh, tweet at me at John Canzano BFT. Tell me how you're feeling as a Blazer fan. And we'll know more about the Blazers' trajectory in 24 to 48 hours.